0: Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought I'd care about gardening until I bought a house in the suburbs.
1: But now I find myself in conversations about liquid fertilizer and I wonder, am I the fertilizer guy now? (laughs) No, no way. Everyone knows the ratio between phosphorus and nitrogen, right? Yeah, I'm still
0: totally cool. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.
2: You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with L.D., Will the Thrill, and T.J. 2 <coughs>
3: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for this very long ride that is coming to an end. Is Will. No, it's not, you liar. Shut up. I'm almost there. Will the thrill before he gets and an that,
1: else. I say greetings and salutations. <laughs> what are you drinking, honey? Well, I figured since we are approaching the end that I will go back to. No, where we're we... not. She lost <laughs> We are approaching the end. Every episode is approaching the end, one at a time. (laughs) We're closer than we've ever been, and now we're even closer. Um, So I have opted for the beer we purchased near the Neverland Ranch, the Figaro Mountain Company Danish Red
3: Lager. I remember that trip, and we should go up there to celebrate the end of the series. What do you think? Yes,
1: I think it's a great place to go.
3: All right, so uh, if you guys want to join us in... Los Ovalos. Los Olivos. <laughs> we'll put out a Facebook ad. We don't care. We'll Join us up there. Oil. We'll we'll get some olive oil. We'll have, well, I won't have a beer, but we'll have several beers and uh, we'll have a good time. Now, what do you say? Like All right. Uh, and also along for this extremely long road trip is my big brother like no other. It's TJ2, the deuce. I mean, you tried. You tried. Well,
4: this is a bottle, so I did the best I could.
3: And what are you drinking?
4: This is Founder's Breakfast Stout.
3: Is that the same one that you had last time where you said that you, oh no, that was a sour, where you said that you could eat it with a fork?
4: Yeah, that was a sour. This is a, uh, I can barely read the label. It's a double chocolate uh, something oatmeal something. I can't, the the writing's very tiny.
1: It's a meal is what it is. How is it though?
4: Well, let's find out.
5: Mm-hmm,
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's tasty! Very chocolatey, like very, very, very malty.
3: Very good. Excellent. Well, if, and you keep uh, talking about
4: this very long trip. This this trip is longer than the one that like Clark Griswold and his family took to Wally World. <laughs>
1: Longer than that one where (laughs) Odysseus.
4: We haven't tied a dog to the bumper and we haven't had an an aunt that died. Other than that, it's been very similar.
3: Well, just hold on because I actually have gauged our time within this episode. So uh Mm -hmm. just hold. Uh I I hope you guys saw our TikTok. Uh that was me when we when we announced that the episode was coming, it was a little bit delayed. I'm sorry about that, guys. But I had to go see the new kids on the block on their mixtape tour. And that included Rick Astley, Salt and Peppa, and In Vogue. And I collectively lost my freaking mind. It was 13-year-old me was so happy. She was just inside, bursting at the seams. And the scene that you guys saw, if you looked at our TikTok, was me losing my ever-loving shite onto Salt and Peppa because they were about to do my favorite song, which is Shoop. So uh, if you guys are wondering why the episode was late last week. That's because my, my little 13-year-old self that lives inside of me needed to take a walk down nostalgia lane and get Rick rolled by actual Rick.
4: Yeah, because yeah, because she as much as she says she loves you, really your second banana to Rick Astley.
3: Oh, I already I text I messaged this. I text messaged Will in the middle of the concert and said, Honey, I'm leaving you for Rick Astley. And then mm-hmm. I just kept sending uh, the text, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty
1: and i knew it was coming i foresaw this for years <laughs>
3: he looks like marty freeman and it's so cute he looks he looks like uh, he looks like a barbershop quartet leader he's adorable oh god he's just oh so
4: cute it looks like howdy doody's redheaded cousin He's not he doesn't he
3: doesn't look like a redhead anymore. He doesn't look like as gingery as he did in the eighties. Definitely silver, right? Yeah, he's gray or bald or what's
4: what's going on. Oh no, he's
3: got a luscious head of hair. Okay. Luscious head of hair. So uh I guess that was the the only news that we had this week, which is a good thing. Any any week we don't have to bring the news of someone's passing to you guys is always a good week. So for that, we're happy. Uh so we're actually just going to leap right into this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. Will, take it away.
1: Yes. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Because let's be honest, we can all use a little help sometimes. Everyone, no matter where you are in your life, can use a little help. We spend a lot of time working on the things we know are important, career, diet, school, family. But at the end of the day, I ask you this, when was the last time you focused on your mental health? Well, I know for me, it was way too long. Like a lot of people, I was doing all of those things, working as hard as I could and just, it wasn't right. The equation didn't balance. Somehow I thought there was something wrong with me and I needed somebody to talk to. I felt isolated, we were in the middle of the pandemic, it was a bad combination. So, what I found, I was feeling disconnected, and I could go to somebody to talk about what was bothering me. And that's exactly where BetterHelp came in. BetterHelp allows you to get the specific help you need for whatever is eating away at you. They will ask you targeted questions to set you up with the right therapist so you can talk about whatever you want big topics, small topics. It's all welcome at BetterHelp. And that counselor is someone who is a licensed therapist. So, you can get therapy from a licensed professional from the comfort of your own home. No more driving around, finding parking, going to offices. It's just a nuisance you don't have to deal with. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. BetterHelp will allow you to start communicating with a licensed therapist in your area in under 48 hours. I'm telling you, it was a game changer for me. It's been a game changer for lots of other people, and it can help in your life as well. That's why we have this special offer for the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast listeners where you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com. All you need to do is go to betterhelp.com and enter our code, which is ROCKHEAVEN. So betterhelp.com slash ROCKHEAVEN. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast, helping me as well. BetterHelp better life.
3: All right. Again, thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring the show. All right. So let's get this train rolling. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I didn't actually know where to start this final episode. And like my brother alluded to, it's not exactly the last episode because I did because promise. That- she lied. Shut up. You're, you're adopted
4: she said last week it was the you know we have one more episode that last week's was the penultimate episode and i just learned that there's another episode.
3: well it's an episode that you don't have to take part in because you don't understand what hbo max is
4: no i have no i don't even know what that is but i can count to 22 <laughs>
3: Well, basically what we're going to be doing is uh, we're going to be sitting down and watching Leaving Neverland. Me and Will are going to take notes. Then we're just going to release an episode with our thoughts on it, a little bit more information around it, what some of the criticism was when it was released and yeah, it's, it's more of a relaxed fit episode where it's not exactly a slap nuts because it's not fun or funny. And we're just talking about one subject. My brother's not going to be there unless he wants to, but yeah, you know, tune in. It's, it's going to be an extra episode of Michael Jackson. Uh, I'm probably going to release it pretty much at the same time that we are going to be moving directly onto our episodes with Tammy Wynette. So, so we've been going at this for a very long time. I decided to start off with a couple of fun facts to illustrate how long we've actually been doing episodes. Fun facts. On I'll Michael Jackson. Fun facts to demonstrate how long we've been doing episodes. On Michael Jackson. On Michael Jackson. There you go. Okay. So this series was released on November 17th, 2001. And just to give you guys a, a little idea of how long ago that was, it was 198 days ago. Um, Gas was three dollars and forty-one cents. That was the national average. Milk was two fifty. The number one song was "Easy" by Adele, and the number one movie at the box office was "The Eternals." And on their Facebook page, the band posted: "California" was released as a single on this day in the UK in 1977. It was written by Sue Vickers, who at the time was married to Mike Vickers, who was a member of the Manfred Man's Earth Band. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
4: Ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred man's Earth Band reference of the podcast has now been satisfied.
5: Mm. Oh, so satisfying!
3: That's that's it's still creepy. Um, do you guys remember where you were when you heard the news about Michael Jackson I, not about not him exactly
4: being in uh, in the hospital and not responsive, or actually dead?
3: like actually dead
4: i actually have a story about that day okay are we are we are we starting there
3: that's let's start there because i mean because look if if you're tuning in to michael jackson part 21 i assume you know where this is gonna end mm
4: -hmm. so this was in uh, 2009 i believe correct when he died correct I remember, and everyone who listens to the show knows that I work for a newspaper, I was out covering, and I want to give them a shout out because they're a great group. Uh, They're called the Salkahatchee Summer Project. It's a sort of a ministry of the Methodist Church, but what they do is is they get all these volunteers, most of them kids, young, I mean, you know, young young adults and, and teens, and they go to economically depressed areas. They sleep in a church for a week, and they spend that entire week in the middle of the brutal South Carolina summer working on the homes of elderly and indigent people, like people who live in absolute squalor, who have like holes in their roofs and their floors are collapsing. Like they go rebuild their roofs and like rebuild the the foundation of their house so that their floors don't bow and like redo their plumbing and the whole bit. People so who just could not like people don't otherwise
3: just like going out and doing good things for people.
4: Well, yes, but they, what they do is they target specific communities, usually, usually very poor ones, like the one I work in. And so there were a bunch of volunteers working on a house. Um, they were, I think, re- like raising the floor and redoing wiring and all like all, like extensive w- w- work on this, this lady's house who was elderly and not of any means and couldn't afford to have that stuff you know pay to have that stuff done so it was a very nice story and very good nice of these kids who weren't from Chester where I work they were just from uh, all all over the state to to come and stay in Chester for a week and do stuff like that so I I go and I'm I'm taking pictures and I just I remember for some reason it was an exceptionally hot day it was scorching hot and um so I'm, I'm, then these kids are out there working like on roofs and uh, crawling under houses and stuff and the miserable oppressive south carolina heat one of those uniquely hellish south carolina days where it's 95 degrees with 90 percent humidity somehow and uh so i'm I'm out at the site but i left my cell phone in the car for some reason and i was out covering i was out talking to these these volunteers i can tell you why
3: i can tell you why you left your phone in the car is because you only had it for like a week and a half at this I'd yeah, only point.
4: had it for a week or two. And it, so it wasn't a, a new thing. Kind of like when you first get your wedding ring. You have to get used to putting it on every morning. So, uh, but I left my phone in my car and I'm, I'm out at the this site for several hours talking to these kids and talking to the lady that owned the house and all this stuff. And I got back in my car and I picked up my, my phone was blinking because this at this point I still had a flip phone. I had a flip phone until 2015. <laughs> so really, you know,
3: yeah, if you guys um, haven't noticed yet, my brother is what we like to call technologically disadvantaged. He's
4: he's what we like to call a backwards heel.
3: I'm not actually I'm not actually sure that you know how to use a computer.
4: I I do because I I you know I have to I have to make the, the computer be on and push the buttons and stuff when I'm at work.
3: Then you're already ahead of mom. She doesn't
4: actually know how to turn it on. (laughs) But anyway, so I I get back in my car and my phone's blinking. I was like, oh, I've I've got a text or or something. And I open it up and I had something like 24 texts and 15 missed calls. And I thought, oh God, someone's died. Right. And I mean like family member.
3: Yeah, but I I wasn't, I wasn't calling you. So it's fine.
4: So but but you know what I'm saying, like you when you if you sit your phone down for a while and you come back and you have a ton of missed calls and messages, your first thought is, oh God, something terrible has happened and people are trying to reach me to tell me. And so two things were going on simultaneously. One of them is that my state's then governor Mark Sanford had just been um, located not on the Appalachian Trail where he said that he was, but flying back from South America where he had been um cavorting with his mistress gigantic national international story um I, I think i actually know the the reporter who got the flight manifest realized where he was and was waiting on him when he flew back actually
3: that's just good journalism
4: yeah there's very it was, it was great journalism but uh and she and she she was waiting she was literally waiting at the gate for him when he got off his plane returning having returned from south america and if everybody doesn't remember that he said he was that he was hiking the Appalachian Trail, um, and he wasn't. He was. He was. Um, he was in South America uh, having uh, sex with someone other than his wife. Anyway, so, so he was hiking news, up. So, a, he, so,
3: uh, so he was hiking up a different set of mountains.
4: Yeah, he wasn't. A, it, everybody just misunderstood. He, 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 he didn't say he was hiking the Appalachian Trail. He said he was humping some Argentinian table.
3: <laughs> yeah, so sorry. I'm so sorry to our audience, but that's, I'm, not, I'm, le- I'm leaving that me. in and that is funny. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and I thought of it. too. Anyway, so as you can imagine, I've worked in news. This is a big story. This is my state's governor. I'd actually knew Mark relatively well. I've met him several times. Um, so this, this is breaking, but then that's what most of them were about. But then mixed in, there were a couple of, Hey, um, have you seen this about Michael Jackson? He's like in the hospital and not doing well. And uh, so, this, so it's dual dual. Uh, I've got two things going on at once. But again, li- literally pick up my phone, and it's it was something ridiculous like twenty four texts and fifteen missed phone calls or something. So I get back to my office, uh, you know, cut the computer on, and I start looking at some news stuff, and I see it. there's basically for 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 about an hour, Mark Sanford was the like the number one story in the world, and then Michael Jackson. I guess it, it it began it began to spread that he was in the hospital and he wasn't doing now, well. Now wait Perhaps, wait
3: wait wait you're missing one major thing that happened. No
4: there's no no I'm not I'm getting to okay, it. Okay
3: okay because so, before he died something else happened. But, well
4: there there was well but so unfortunately yes, Farrah Fawcett died that day, and that that news which would on any other normal day would have gotten a gigantic amount of publicity almost went unnoticed because the Sanford story was so huge. And then he, it got dwarfed and Trump just, I, I mean, an hour or two after he did the his, the, the press, con- that the now memorable press conference, because now the, the news is getting out that not only is Michael Jackson in the hospital, he's not responsive. Um, he was perhaps on life support. And it was a very similar thing to what we talked about with Tom Petty, where there was a lot of media speculation and some people maybe jumping the gun and reporting things that weren't totally accurate but it dawned on me at a certain point okay so Farrah Fawcett died just a little while ago and that's really terrible and there's all this stuff going on with uh, my governor and that's uh, pretty embarrassing for my state oh and the uh the uh, biggest uh musical icon in the <laughs> the world is about to die like all of those things just kind of dropped right in my lap at one time you know it was very that was quite a day I just re- I remember all that stuff so well i just, I remember blazing hot day being out at that site and coming back and that phone was just blinking like Bip, pip, 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 pip. i was like oh god what's what's happened you know so that that's that's pretty much my recollection of that
3: all right will what was your recollection of his final day i seriously do not recall <laughs> um
5: i you remember monster
1: i remember I seeing the footage around the the house i remember that and uh watching that and then finding out that Farrah Fawcett had passed away. Um, honestly, I don't, I don't remember where I was. It, outside of those events, it wasn't a very significant day.
3: Okay, so... The, the the thing is, you guys know that I I was an actor for a while, and I was working on a show called Mad Men. And I was in the secretarial pool of that show. And so if you watch any of season two or three, chances are you might spot me. I was Freddie Rumson's secretary in the episode where he pees himself. And uh, I'm in the back when the guy gets his foot run over by a lawnmower. All this is probably, you know, it would be a spoiler alert, but the show is like over a decade old now. So Sorry. But, uh, you know, we get called in pretty early because there's a sizable amount of women on the show that need hair, makeup, and wardrobe. And it's all very era appropriate. As in, when we do it, we have to uh, curl our hair in sponge rollers and we have specific uh, things that we could wear. Like our, you know, here's a little inside scoop. We don't wear our own stuff. On the show, and the only thing that you wear that is your own is your underwear. You don't even wear your own bra, so we have to get there really early because there's like 30 of us that you know have to go through hair and makeup and wardrobe. And so we've gotten all through hair and makeup, and I remember hearing about Farrah Fawcett, and all of the girls are like, "Oh no," because pretty much all of us do a lot of you know, period pieces, because we all kind of have that 1950s, 1960s look about us. And so she was kind of an icon for a lot of us. And then two hours later, we find out that Michael Jackson died. Here's where the upheaval happens is because every single one of us were somehow devastated by this news. And so what they had to do was to send everybody through hair and makeup again, because we had all been crying. So I will never forget the day that we found out that two icons passed away on the same day and we had to redo our hair and our makeup because we had messed it up because at least, you know, you at least shed a tear when we found out that that happened. And the strange thing was that, that I knew the connection between Michael Jackson and Farrah Fawcett is because Farrah, you know, who was she with? ryan o'neill who's ryan o'neill's daughter tatum,
5: no. tatum.
3: Yes. yes tatum o'neill which was one of my kennedy Jackson.
4: had a secretary named nixon and nixon had a secretary named her. yeah no well
3: they, they, Lincoln. Were, they yes, were connected. And Lincoln. I
4: don't, i'm tired i don't <laughs>
3: don't, don't be a dick they were connected you jerk <laughs> this is what happens when we record at night my brother's a dick <laughs> so so that's that that kind of wrapped up that part But yeah, I mean, it was, it was really a devastating day. And the crazy thing was, is that I have always just had a hatred for TMZ and they were the first ones to accurately pin down the time of death. And uh, later on, I'm actually going to play a little bit of the CNN coverage of that day, but let's get into the actual story. So we're going to go all the way back to 1967. I'm kidding. I wanted to go ahead and cite my sources for a lot of this episode, which would be Making Michael Inside the Career of Michael Jackson by Mike Smallcomb. And the other, of course, is J. Randy Terraborelli, The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story, Michael Jackson, 1958 to 2009. And guys, again, I cannot express enough how important those two books were. And if you can get your hands on them, I would absolutely read them. It fills in all the blanks that I happened to miss in our 20, 20- two episode long odyssey for Michael Jackson, but we're just going to tiptoe back a little bit for January of 2008. Michael at this time was still living in a suite atop the Palms Hotel, which is the perfect location for him to continue creating music. The hotel actually boasts Las Vegas's first state-of-the-art studio built in 2005 by owner George Maloof. He had the intent of bringing the city in line with other big music cities in the U.S. Now hey, that w-
4: can I ask a question real quick? Yeah, is that the same George Maliff that used to own the Sacramento Kings?
3: It might be because he owned Palms, the Palms Casino. Okay, right? yeah, I believe yeah. I believe it's the same. The same okay, name. all right,
4: that, that 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 name rung a bell, but, and I so I had to, I was like, he's owned a sports team. I had to look up which, but it, there was maloof that owned the the kings at one point
3: you know it wouldn't shock me i didn't i didn't back check that but you know what that sounds about right i mean it's the same thing as mark cuban who owns the mavericks doesn't he also own property in las vegas as well he owns he he
4: owns a ton of stuff yeah
3: yeah so it it doesn't shock me george allowed michael to use the 1850 dollars a day facility free of charge including the and i this isn't a number i can understand when it comes to hotel rooms which is forty thousand dollars a night?
5: Sweet, Good God.
3: yeah. And and he was not just like, it wasn't like a weekend trip. He was living there.
4: They better have turn back service and put candy on my pillow. Seriously.
3: <laughs> they, they, they better
4: do twenty them. grand. I better have HBO and the spa and late checkout. <laughs> yeah, and late checkout.
3: I better have a color TV, phone in room. <laughs> what?
4: you still say that in places i'm like that's your selling point really <laughs> with the phone in the room
3: i i just always look at those that places that it. have that and just think that's where people get murdered
4: yes that's where, that's where people buy drugs and pay for sex yep mainly
3: so he was actually working in the studio at that time with akon who helped him put together the thriller 25 album and the moroccan swedish producer red one now If that name sounds familiar, it's because Lady Gaga name drops him in her song, Just Dance. And when the first song that Michael and Akon worked together, it was a song that was called Hold My Hand. The song is really emotional, the songwriter stated. It's about unity and it has a message of friendship and togetherness and definitely struck a chord with Michael. But Michael wasn't content with the other material that he had worked on with Akon. He was just never satisfied, Akon admitted. We might have passed up ideas that I know for a fact were smashes. And he's like, nah, no, nah, we've got to come up with something better. He always believed that we could do better. Thriller 25 was released in February of 2008 and became a huge commercial success, especially for a re-release. If it had been eligible to enter the Billboard 200 charts, it would have reached all the way to number two, and it would have reached... Uh, number three in the United Kingdom. The album sold an incredible 3 million copies within three months of its release, and it eventually increased to 10 million. Focus on that number for just a second. 10 million for a re-release. Yeah, I mean, but by Michael Jackson's standard, that's, like, not that great. <laughs> that's the scary thing. Well, I mean, he's used to, like, 100 million for exactly. Thriller. I mean, that, that's, spoiled. Just, that's just adding to it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious if they count a re-release in the sales, the initial sales of an album.
1: You mean to solidify its position as the number one selling album of all time?
3: Yes. So, so, you know, it's a, on a, upon release, it initially sold 30 million. You add this 10, now it's 40 million. Or if this counts as its own thing, uh, Michael was delighted with the response from the public and it inspired him to make new music. His gradual return to the limelight was set to continue with his representatives beginning talks. Over performance at the 50th annual Grammy Awards in Los Angeles on February 10th, but the idea never came to fruition. So by early 2008, despite the recent reconstruction of his financial empire, Michael actually reached peak crisis of his cash flow. He defaulted on the payments for Neverland Ranch, a loan which was still held by Fortress and unaffected by the refinancing. And he was told to pay off the entire $24.5 million balance by March 19th. That was for so, the loan? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Cause it was it was in the lurch. And he would have to pay that entire balance off by March 19th to prevent foreclosure, which would have been bad financially. Lenders were now refusing to loan Michael money. So at this point, like he can't get loans. He has the Neverland Ranch is in the lurch. He doesn't actually have anything to hold collateral. So Michael's brother, Jermaine, met Lebanese American businessman named Dr. Tome Tomei, who lived in Los Angeles. And I I tried to look up that name and that was the best pronunciation I could get. So Tome Tomei. Tome was in real estate and Jermaine thought that he might be able to help. His instincts were correct, and he was able to connect Michael to an associate, Tom Barrick, who made billions buying and selling distressed properties through his investment firm called Colonial Capital, which that name does ring a bell with me, but I don't know why. I've seen signs for that for some reason. Maybe, like around Or, or are
4: you thinking of Colonial pen Life Insurance? <laughs> 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 They're a thing, too.
3: Ding, ding, ding. By 2008, Michael was earning $26 million a year, most of which came from his music catalog, but his outgoing money was forty-two million. So if you figure that out, he's he's at a little bit of a deficit.
1: I'm no accountant, but I'm going to say that's the case. Yes.
3: Yeah. Well, twenty-five to thirty million of that was going into debt interest alone.
4: Oh my lord. Yeah. So that's like that's like the that's like the United States.
3: I'm. It's Pretty not much. far off. Michael had been spending an average of 15 to 20 million more a year than he was earning for the past decade. So he he arranged to sell his assets to make some money. Where you are is an unsolvable puzzle, unless you're willing to go back to work. If you're willing to do that, we can help you. But if you're not willing to do that, it's just presiding over a funeral, Barrick told Michael. Michael was reluctant to tour again. All he wanted to do was make movies, and he had a hard time with the idea and he struggled with it for three days. Because remember, like all Michael wanted to do was break into the film industry, which had not been as kind to him as the music industry had been.
1: I know he was up for several roles or he was campaigning to get several roles, and they ultimately went to other individuals. Um, We've talked about them, I believe.
3: Well, not just that, but he was also in, you know, what would be considered commercial flops and he missed out on the charlie and the chocolate factory so i mean he he really he wanted to focus on movies and not Mm -hmm. music anymore but basically it was like dude you know you're where you're good but
4: that's where his bread was buttered and yeah it says quite a lot that you're making 26 million a year and you're running the 16 million dollar annual deficit Yeah, I mean, it's one of those deals where it's like, yeah. I mean, I know you've had to put up with a lot of, you know, deal with a lot of stuff, but uh, you you spend too much money. You're making
1: twenty six million a year. Well, again,
3: remember he got rid of everybody who was a no man. Anybody was on detriment. Yeah, he sure did everybody who had ever had any kind of like ability to rein him in has been dismissed the only person right now that you that i on that i think this is just my opinion could have reached him at this point was his mom she was the she was always the one that that could figure out a way to talk to him to get him to do something and i'm not really sure that the whole family's communicating at this point it's but-
4: one of those deals though where he just seems like he's a little bit detached from reality at this point. Well, I don't want to tour. I just want to make movies. Well, you're you're not making movies, and you're you're like hundreds of million dollars in the hole. So
1: yeah. And the crazy thing yeah. is, you can go on tour and shore a lot of that up. That's not
3: an exaggeration. Well, just just hold on to that thought because we definitely talk about that. So after mulling it over for three days, he called back Barrack and said, "You're right. I'll do it." So after Michael agreed to return to the stage, Tom Barrick wrote a check and saved Neverland from being auctioned to the highest bidder on the steps of the Santa Barbara courthouse. Like literally on the steps like a normal house auction, which is crazy to me. And the funny thing is, Michael never even went back to the Neverland ranch. Yeah,
1: it's just sitting there at this point, isn't it?
3: yeah
4: hey LD I hate to interrupt your uh pretend last episode of Michael Jackson since you're going to do another one but we need to take a break for our sponsors
3: and we're back all right back to the final episode I swear of Michael Jackson
4: no it's not the funny thing to me is that uh you know they did those, those auctions on the courthouse steps and like uh, newspapers and then like like the one I work or will run these lists of, of the properties or whatever can you and people will like come and buy a copy of the like usually from out of town they'll come and buy a copy of that paper specifically so they'll know you know they'll know when the auction is and they can go bid on these properties and do a little something to them and flip them or do something but can you imagine the person the people showing up on the courthouse steps to buy the 500 million dollar palatial estate <laughs> like because it's it literally normally is like yes it's a it's a it's a 500 square foot house on a on a quarter acre uh parcel yeah i'll, I'll give you like a grand for it yeah, okay that, that,
1: that has burned down
3: right <laughs> yeah.
4: it, it has no it has no running water and uh, lots of rat poop in it i give you a thousand bucks okay this guy gets uh, it. <laughs>
3: yeah um yeah could you Up imagine next, just- we have
4: the uh 500 acre palatial estate with a zoo a water
3: park roller. <laughs> we'll start the bidding at $12. Hey, I'll give you a,
4: I'll give you, I'll give you 500 bucks for that one.
3: <laughs> sold. So yeah, that's I first. I don't know. I don't know what it is that makes Michael want to hold on to the Neverland Ranch. He should have just sold it because after the police searched it, he never went back. But that's the thing that he's the most, like the the property that he is, the most associated with other than the house in Indiana. So it's just, it just baffles me. I'm so confused. Barrick estimated that if it marketed properly, the ranch would be worth, as much as 60 to 70 million dollars. Holy crap. Which I, I think now we discovered that it it wasn't because I believe Neverland might have been sold for like 37 million to 47. I wanna but I'm not quite sure. And who it went to was a, a family friend of the Jacksons. So yeah. I don't think it actually ended up I think they got it for a steal for 24. So, if it's the price to... tag is sixty-seven, sure. <laughs> yeah, but I think they dropped it, and they kept dropping it, and they kept dropping it. So I don't ever think it reached, you know, our our range that we're looking for a house in. Not not really even close. It's like TJ said. I'll give you a thousand dollars. Done. <laughs> exactly. In early June of two thousand eight, Michael dined with Barrick at the Las Vegas Hilton, and the two discussed options for a comeback. Barrick, and I hope I'm saying that right, Barrick. Barrack it's either Barack or Barrick. I'm going with Barrick. Initially entertained the idea of having Michael do a residency at the Hilton which colonial owned. Uh, as well as other concert promoters Barrick reached out to his friend and I'm probably going to kill this but I'm going to say Phil and Schultz who owned AEG Live and, and informed him that Michael was ready to return to the stage. AEG, of course, had already been discussions with Michael earlier in the year, but to no avail. And put Barrick in touch with AEG Live CEO Randy Phillips, who was introduced to Michael's latest primary advisor, the mysterious financier, Dr. Tomei. Tomei claimed to have strong connections with wealthy figures in the Arab world. Not my words. That name sounds like he's a bad guy in a Bond movie or something. Uh, you know, um... You're not far off. No, apparently. I don't think I am. Well, I was watching a YouTube clip about him and, and it seemed like Michael was actually kind of scared of him in the end. So, mm. but um, he also said that he was a medical doctor and a special envoy to the African country of Senegal. Tomei conceded that he was not a licensed physician, although he did possess a passport signed by the former president of Senegal, describing him the country's ambassador at large okay don't know what that means but that's what the book told me the book said the words probably good on a business card (laughs) michael was So happy with his role in helping save Neverland that he actually signed over two different separate powers of attorney, giving him control over both his financial and his business affairs. So he basically owns Michael and he's Michael's new manager, despite his lack of experience. Tomei and Philip met mid-June at a bar in the Hotel Bel Air, which Tomei treated as his office. They initially discussed the loose terms, which include a multi-year touring plan and a, res- a residency at the O2 Arena. Now, is there an O2 Arena in America?
1: I have no idea.
3: That sounded familiar to me, but it, it's in London. The O2 Arena is, is, that we're going to be discussing is in London, as discussed in 2007. Phillips noted that it takes a very special artist to deserve a major residency show. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to give it to somebody, I suggest you give it to Michael Jackson. Sorry, that's just me. He recommended London because it was the hottest concert market in the world, even bigger than New York and Toronto combined. So London was bigger than New York and Toronto in the concert market. How I that came out of left field for me. Uh, Yeah, me too. Didn't he? TJ, you first?
4: No, no. I was just saying, no, that's that's very that's very surprising to hear.
1: Well, I thought he always had a big following in the UK, so I don't think it's all that surprising.
3: Well, okay. He had a following in the UK. The Jackson five did not. So for like the earlier stuff, they weren't like huge fans of remember episode one through five where we discussed that, but also his popularity was less diminished in the UK because I don't think they followed the court cases as closely as we did, but like he still was in the tabloids, but he still had, he still had a good name in there. So following further conversations between Michael, Michael's representatives, AEG, Michael traveled to Los Angeles and met directly with Phillips at the Hotel Bel Air in September of 2008. For the first time, Michael spoke primarily about performing live rather than his film and music plans. It was then looking him straight in the eye that I actually realized that it was not a wild goose chase. Philip recalls later that September. Michael and his representatives had a formal meeting with AEG executives at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Phillips recalled Michael being laser focused during the meeting. It was agreed that in principle that Michael would perform a series of concerts at the O2 Arena in 2009 and his plans to release new music around the show were discussed. Michael also talked one more about his ambitions to write, produce, direct, and star in films. And Ann Schultz who had two film production companies said that he would help. So, I'm, you know, he's actually getting back on track. Meanwhile, on August 29th, 2008, Michael turned 50 to commemorate the landmark Sony, who, as we all know, holds all of the uh, recordings of Michael Jackson, released a greatest hits album by the name of King of Pop. The album track list differs in every single country it was released in because the fans were given the opportunity to vote on which songs would be included on each country's version. My question is: Does somebody out there have every different version? Because I feel like that would be a collector's dream. You're there. Don't know.
4: I'm sure there's some. I'm sure there's some Uber fans somewhere who probably does.
3: Oh yeah, I'm sure that there's somebody out there that that owns all of them.
4: I'm, I'm yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there is some Uber Uber fan somewhere who has every single one of them. We were certainly into you know digital music by this time, not full throws, but pretty pretty far along. Uh, so you probably had a combo of that and like beating through the like import bins and stuff. Yeah. At that point, I'm sure there's somebody who probably I'm sure there's somebody who's a big enough fan that they that they wanted all of them and got them. I, I would I would guess.
3: See, and, and it makes me wonder if it was released on vinyl because. I don't think our. I wonder if
4: any country picked the song about the librarian. <sighs>
3: that's, that would not, be, uh, that's not, that would be, yeah. that's <laughs> not how it <that> works. <laughs> All right. Negotiations with AEG continued, and Michael and the children moved to Los Angeles in late October, where they checked into a huge first floor suite at the Hotel Bel Air. Michael returned to California at the behest of Tomei, who felt like he should be closer to the center of the concert industry. All the musical equipment was brought over from Las Vegas and Michael continued to work in the hotel with engineer Michael Durham Prince. Here, vocals were recorded for the pre-existing track, I'm a Loser, which became I Was the Loser and Best of Joy. They were the final vocals that Michael would record in his lifetime. Although we continued to work on the music for a few months, that was the last time he truly sang, Prince said. On Halloween, Michael again met with Randy Phillips in his suite and revealed the real motives behind his decision to tour again. Michael told Phillips that his children were now at an age where they can appreciate his talents and he was still young enough to perform. Michael admitted that he wanted his family to stop living like vagabonds. He was tired of living in other people's houses since leaving Neverland in 2005 and wanted to finally settle down and find a permanent home for himself and his children. And apparently that was a super emotional meeting. Uh, Michael got very emotional and it kind of shocked everybody that Michael really didn't have the means or didn't seem like he had the means at the time to buy a home. But again, he's got Neverland. I don't, I, I just like, that's the weird missing piece for me.
4: Willie, Willie, you, you touched on in the last episode or episode before that he felt that that Neverland was tainted by the allegations and the cops coming in and taking pictures of him there and, digging through his belongings and stuff and that it, it it had that had somehow ruined it and he didn't want that that he, he just couldn't go back is what he had said previously
3: right but why not sell it that's my question
4: good, good question i don't know
3: before michael could sign with aeg there was just a little matter of securing a release contract from a bahrainian prince we'll let that sink in for a second As you do michael had apparently signed away the rights to his live performances and entered into a contract agreement while he was living in bahrain in 2006 like right after the trial when he moved and and hung out with the royal family to complete the aeg deal michael had to be released from that contract which meant he had to settle a lawsuit with the sheik that had filed a lawsuit through a london high court 18 months earlier Sheikh Abdullah claimed that Michael owed him at least $7 million after he funded his living costs as an advance for restarting his career in the kingdom. But after spending nearly a year in Bahrain, Michael disappeared to Europe without repaying a penny or completing any projects. The case was settled out of court in late November 2008, and Michael agreed to pay the Sheikh $3 million and the release was finally granted. With the settlement reached and the negotiations with AEG processing, Michael moved out of the Hotel Bel Air to a huge seven-room chateau on North Carolwood Drive in Los Angeles. The neighborhood was Beverly Hills and Bel Air adjacent. Mm, Wow. (laughs) It actually borders Beverly Hills and Bel Air, forming what's called Los Angeles's Platinum Triangle. Did you know, do you know that phrase, honey? I don't think I've ever heard that phrase ever. You have lived here longer than I have. And I have never, (laughs) not not by much, but I've never heard that phrase. No, I've never heard that either. Not like I spent a lot of time in that area, but still. If you live in Los Angeles and you listen to this podcast, like shoot us a message. Let us know. Like, have you ever heard that phrase? Because it sounds fancy, but it also sounds kind of ominous because it's kind of like the Bermuda Triangle. Like you can just get lost in the never come out again. Yeah. Yeah. Elvis's house that he owned uh, between 1970 and 1975 was about 200 feet across the road. And Walt Disney, Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Clark Gable, Gregory Peck, all used to live about a half a mile up the road from the Carrollwood Estate. That property was valued at $38 million. Good God. And it was owned by or an Ed Hardy executive, I don't think it was the CEO, and had previously been rented by James Bond star, Sir Sean Connery.
1: Hey, I know that guy.
3: Yeah, you do. AEG was actually footing the $100,000 a month rent of the property as part of the contract that Michael had signed. They actually paid for a 12-month lease. And if you're balking at that price tag, it was actually cheaper to move into the Chateau on Carrollwood. Than it was living at the Bel Air full time. I, I I don't know what it was at the time, but yeah, it's it, hotel living is not as cheap as people think it is. No, not nearly. So Michael finally signed the contract with AEG on January the 28th of 2009. We are in Michael's final year. The agreement outlined that Michael would perform a minimum of 18 shows and a maximum of 31 starting in July and finishing September at the O2 Arena in London. The number 31 was very significant. Michael wanted 10 more shows than Prince had done in 2007, and it would also break the record for the number of shows performed at the O2 in the process. The meeting ended with a champagne toast and parties high-fiving each other all around. Phase 1 would see the announcement of the initial 10 shows, which would most likely increase by, you know, depending on public demand, the number could fluctuate from 31 up. And you'll see it does. If the demand was greater than 31 shows, an agreement could um, be amended for further shows, but that was based on Michael's approval. So if there was a demand for more than 31 shows and Michael said, no, it would be shut down. Now, I will say at the time, Michael did receive a lot of advances from AEG, which I'm not really going to go into, but one of the big things was that Michael had to sign a promissory note with the collateral being literally everything he owned. What did that document look like exactly? This or everything? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, well, think about it because he's not as consistent as he used to be. And he's not great with finances.
4: No, he's he's terrible with it. But where's your lawyer? Yee. It's got to be somebody like
3: well, literally. Okay, I'm
1: going to sign this
4: note against every single possession that I have. Ah, like did he have an attorney anymore? Present? Well, I, I, think was, I think it was. I think it was Was he getting one out time. of a strip mall somewhere?
3: Possibly. It's it was he one of those let him like sign that? billboard bus stop people. Guy with the mustache.
4: Yeah. All sevens. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Basically. <laughs> the The agreement was that if he reneged on the deal, that AEG would take control of Michael's companies and use the income from his assets and his music catalog and royalties to recoup their money. Now, remember that Sony catalog; someone priced it over a billion dollars. Yeah. So, and he's putting that up against his name. But that was one of the advantages. Well, well,
4: okay, but here, okay, now here's a question: <laughs> you, you may not be able to answer it because we we probably don't know. But so. If he still holds that music catalog, including the entire uh, what Acuff Rose catalog, the, the, everything the Beatles ever did, uh, a lot of other stuff, all of his music and stuff, and the value, that's a billion dollars. Then why is he signing promissory notes against everything he owns to be given upfront money to do concerts? Why don't you just sell your, the music catalogs and you're, in good, and you're fine? Then you're out of debt. You don't have to do these shows. You don't have to sign a promissory note against every single possession that you have. Like that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. None of, none of this makes
3: sense. I don't think at this time he had people on his side because again, like even John Baraka, I'm gonna always butcher this name, was on again, off again. Like he just didn't have that stability in his life anymore. And I think basically what he saw was like, okay, if I just do this, I can dig myself out. I think that was but like just the sell process. the catalog.
4: Then you've got, you can keep your house. You You're can free and your clear. Car. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he had a bunch of cars, but you can keep your houses. You can keep all, all your possession, all, like all this, everything. You can keep everything and you don't have to, basically sign your life away to the, whoever this company is to do these concerts that you that it doesn't sound like really want to do to start with.
3: I'm just wondering if Michael Jackson wasn't a hoarder.
4: He might have, I, I wonder know. at this time, a, if he, he had purged every, everybody, not only who would ever tell him no, but everybody who would actually give him any cogent advice. I don't know. Because at a certain point, it's like, look, Michael, you have this, this commodity, you have this asset that is worth a billion dollars. Now you're in debt, like 200 million. And you know, you, you're in. You're in the. You're in the rears to the chic and to some other people, and you're having to uh, sign with this company to go do all these concerts in Europe that it doesn't sound like you want to do. Why don't you just sell the music catalog, pay off all your debt, tell tell the chic to to shove it, tell the company that you're not going to do the concerts, and go do whatever the hell you want to do for the rest of your life with the other eight hundred million dollars.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I'm not. That, like, I mean, that's what I'm saying. We probably yeah. don't know the answer to
4: that. but yeah. That that seems so obvious when if you look, if you just look at like well you have this and this and this and this and those things are worth this amount and then you're in debt this one okay well this one thing that you have is worth a billion dollars yeah I
3: a I billion. know yeah I know Jeez.
4: But it's crazy I mean it's, but but I just I just at this point is he just surrounded by leeches is are, are these is the ecosystem that he's swimming in just so mm. so tainted by leeches and terrible people and people who just look at him and see dollar signs nobody who actually gives a damn about him nobody who's going to give him any any cogent advice nobody who is going to tell him no when he needs to hear that and you know what i mean like it is this is just just the world he's in now is this who he's surrounded by people who don't have his best interest at heart in any manner is that is that what it sounds that's what it sounds like it is to me.
3: I will tell you, it was weird because, yeah, he, people like Tomei come into his life and will do some harm, but it was, it was weird because, remember, in the last episode, we actually talked about, like, after the trial, he never let anyone in his bedroom again, and it was really hard to even let anyone in his life again. So it's just weird, the people that are getting through. Now, I will say that Aeg bringing him back on seemed like a great idea and you know he he did get a lot of those advances which were gonna help that, make his they better. don't
4: seem like the terrible actors in this it, it's some of the other people that you've mentioned but anyway
3: right so now with all the contracts signed Michael began to put that team together for the tour by the end of February he asked his old friend Kenny Ortega who is the director of his previous world tours to come on board as the show director and I will don't say you this, know him <laughs> yes, I do. I will say that Kenny, I met Kenny while working on, I, I get to call him Kenny. No, I don't. It's Mr. Ortega. Uh, while working on the Rocky Horror Picture show, Let's Do the Time Warp Again. And I will tell you what an absolute honor it was to watch a master like Kenny Ortega work. He also directed one of my all time favorite movies called The Newsies. So, uh, but Ken, Kenny has been in the business. For years, and he is. He also did for for any of our younger listeners. He directed and choreographed High School Musical. Oh, that's right. I'm forgetting that. With which is the whole reason why I didn't take Zach Efron seriously for like the first twelve years of his career. but Now I do.
4: And he uh, had a big hand in Joe versus the Volcano. Did he? No, I mean, I just <laughs> that's don't, just don't, a random movie. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> I had forgotten about that movie until right now, <laughs>
4: <laughs> with good reason.
3: Oh, God. Okay. He was very excited, Ortega recalls. And then he used the expression, this is it, a number of times during that phone conversation. I remember saying, you should just call it, this is it. You've said it so many times. He was just very excited. This is it. This is the time. This is great. This is the reason why I want to do this now. And I I want you to be a part of it with me. Ortega was involved in a bunch of other projects at the time, but he actually cleared out his schedule and accepted the offer on a $1 million salary. It was decided that the tour would indeed be called This Is It. Michael chose the title because of its double meaning. This is the last time I'm going to do this, and when I'm on stage, this is the place in the world to be. press conference officially announced the shows was scheduled for March 5th at the O2 Arena in London, but Michael was reluctant to attend. He doesn't want to do these kinds of things, but it's important to show Michael to the world, if you wanted to do a Michael Jackson show, AEG executive Paul Gongaware said, now I'm probably killing that last name too, G-O-N-G-A-W-A-R-E, Gong I'm just going to say Paul Gongaware. To make it worse, Randy Phillips was unable to reach Michael in the week before the conference. The only way Phillips was able to contact him directly was through Dr. Tomei. But Michael wasn't taking his manager's calls. He was actually angry with Tomei because of the way he handled an auction over 2,000 of his personal possessions, which was scheduled to start on April 21st. The items, most of which were stored at Neverland, were estimated to raise at least $12 million at the time when ne- Michael needed it. Michael claimed he agreed to the auction on the basis that he would be able to view photographs of the items before deciding on which one to sell but learned that many priceless and irreplaceable items of extraordinary sentimental value were included in the auction before he had a chance to review them. The auctioneer Julian's auction claimed that the contract entitled it to auction anything it wanted. Michael blamed Tomei for the saga, as it was he who signed the deal on his behalf in August 2008. According to Tomei's attorney, Dennis Hawk, Michael agreed for everything to be auctioned when the agreement was made, but only changed his mind months later when he realized he no longer needed the cash due to the AEG deal. So Michael was furious with Tomei for his general PR handling of the affair. Um, so he basically ended up taking a call from Tomei, put his differences for him aside and decided to attend the conference. At the press conference on March 5th, he told his fans that this will be it. And when I say this is it, I mean, this is it. Michael broke off, touching his chest, clearly elated at the huge reception that he was receiving. Fans were telling him that they still loved him and that it was just really important to him. The morning after the press conference was held, fans were invited to pre-register for tickets on a newly created website called michaeljacksonlive.com to gauge demand. (laughs) 1.6 million people registered which was enough to fill the O2 arena more than a hundred times. And they basically Jeez. crashed the website. <laughs> AEG quickly added 20 more shows for a total of 30. Now only fans who registered were able to buy tickets, but when the pre-sale began, they sold out within minutes. Also crashing Ticketmaster. <laughs> Phillips estimated that Michael could have sold as many as 150 shows and, because most people would want to see him one or more times. So he called Michael and asked him if he would play more than 30 shows. Michael agreed, but only for a total of 50. He didn't want to spend an entire year in London. He also wanted the Guinness Book of World Records to verify whether or not he beat the record for the most concerts performed in one venue by an artist. So with the agreed upon 50 shows, 750,000 tickets were sold and they were snapped up within hours, making it... The fastest selling concert series in history. Damn. Randy Phillips described it. Yeah. Randy Phillips described it as a cultural phenomenon. I don't think he's wrong. Like the only thing I've ever seen that even comes close to that was if tickets go on sale. When we, when, you know, when we went to, um, desert trip, you remember the process for purchasing tickets online for that? Well, I being a nightmare. It was. Yeah. Because you had to stand in a quote-unquote virtual line and we logged on because initially it was only supposed to be one weekend and it sold out so fast that people standing in line that had been standing in line since the, the time that they would be let in because you were all lit in at one time and you basically stood in a virtual line and they're like, you have this many minutes before you can purchase your tickets. You have this many and then they added another weekend. But it took a couple hours, and that was just two weekends. So the only thing that I've ever seen close, and I assume like Coachella is like that as well, like tickets to Coachella go super but, fast.
4: But if he if he sold out, if it was 50 shows, and he sold 750,000 tickets, that means it's 15,000 per show, right? I mean, he, he sold out a 15,000-seat arena 50 times. Yeah. 50 consecutive times. That's but it's pretty it's pretty amazing which oh, yeah.
3: is which is also crazy to think because if it crashed the site you have to think that there might not have been that redundancy in ticket purchase
4: sure but he also was kind of drawing the line at 50 right like that like I'm not doing it that that's
3: it yeah he added he added up to well, 50 I,
4: I think i think we would have to agree that the 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 idea that michael jackson who who'd been one of the world's foremost live performers for at this point 40 years almost. Yeah. Publicly stating, this, all right, guys, this is it. I mean, we're even calling it this is it. These are my last shows ever. I'm never doing this again. That, I mean, that obviously makes them an even hotter ticket.
3: Oh, yeah. No, when we, when we, when I found out about this is it, I legitimately looked at Will and said, if this is his last concert series, I've never seen him in concert. I think we should go. Yeah. Why didn't we again? I can't remember. Because it was in London and they hadn't announced American shows. And he died. That's, that's a reason. Yeah, you're, and died, you're I had never
4: played him, but we'll get there.
3: We'll get there. Now, you also have to remember that Michael would be staying in London till the end of February of 2010. But that was only for the first phase of this mega country tour international. It's it's this is just the first part. He still had the rest of the world that was hungry and waiting for performances by him. The plan was to take This tour around the globe as part of a three-year, 186-show international touring plan with stops in Norway, Sweden, Germany, France, Switzerland, Italy, South Africa, Dubai, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, India, Australia, New Zealand, and South America. And finally, Michael would make a triumphant return to Canada and the United States, but if you would recall, this would be the first time he would be playing in his own country in almost two Decades.
1: United States, Canada, Mexico, Panama. Hey, these it comes to mind.
3: Yep. Back in Los Angeles, Michael and Kenny began to assemble the team that was called Team MJ. Uh, he set out to hire people that he admired. That was lighting, production, design, choreography, and music. Travis Payne was hired as the lead choreographer, Michael Burden as the music director, and Michael Cotton as the production and stage designer. Rehearsals for This Is It began in late March 2009 at center staging in Burbank. Yay. That's not far away from us. No, it is not. The team would spend several hours having creative conversations and going through Michael's vast archives of photos and videos and records. On one meeting, Michael revealed his grand plan for the concert, his grand plan for the concert. He said, I want to push it to its limits all the way. Every afternoon Michael would rehearse with Travis in the basement studio of the Carrollwood Mansion. The choreography was mainly based on previous tours, although Michael and Travis worked together to make it more dynamic and age appropriate. So I guess that means no hee hee in mid-April, 500 dancers flew in from all over the world to California to attend auditions at the Nokia Theater in downtown Los Angeles. Michael was present on the final day of the three-day process when 12 dancers were selected to perform at both the national and international venues on a two-year contract. How awesome would that have been to be one of those 12? That would be like, crazy. Yeah. Like you work your entire life for this. And like all of a sudden, you are now on a two-year contract with just the biggest pop star ever. So after the initial concept building of the show, Michael didn't actually need to returned to rehearsals as often as the dancers were. Uh, So he would just get brought up to speed by visiting center stage and attending production meetings and singing and rehearsing with the band. So like once all that was done and they had like a vague idea of the show, he didn't have to come as much. And of course, Michael's life wouldn't be Michael's life if he weren't being sued. Uh, Numerous individuals who claimed that they were owed money by him tried to bring up litigation. At this time, he also broke ties, and cut off all contact with Dr. Tomei Tome. The main reason was his role in the Neverland Auction. Although the auction was later canceled, it cost Michael money because he had to settle with the auctioneers. And in a surprising twist, Michael actually brought back Frank DeLeo. Yay! He was one of the good ones, wasn't he? He was. After 20 years, he was appointed as a representative and a tour manager. And... Of course, on the verge of Michael being successful again, who shows up? Joe. His cash-strapped father, who also began meddling in his son's affairs again. Oh, Joe. We've missed you. Joseph had been trying to organize a family reunion concert tour. Behind Michael's back, of
4: course. He, of course, he had.
3: Yeah, of course. Like, geez, he's. D- this would be like the third time he's done that.
4: That he's tried to do this. Does anybody in that family make money except for like Michael and Janet? Oh,
3: uh, not, not not nearly. No, not on that level. No. Or do they
4: all just have to try to lean on them in some way to to make their coin?
3: I mean, I'm not gonna say yes because I don't keep track. Like, they could be producers. You know, they could, they could well, be doing at, anything.
4: At least, at least from the perspective of Joseph, it, uh, the, the, the money always somehow hinges around, well, we got to do a reunion tour with Michael. It's like, well, why can't everybody just kind of stand on their own two feet at this point? You know?
3: Yeah. I, I, or maybe
4: yeah. it's just Joe that's trying to make money. I don't know.
3: Well, again, he was strapped for cash. It's all about Joe. I mean, it's, it's really, this is the Joe show. Let's be honest. So, of course, he like we just talked about, he was he so he was trying to organize his family reunion concert. And at the behest of his mother, who was behind the idea this time, Michael agreed to meet Joe and Leonard Rowe on April 14th. Michael made it clear that he couldn't perform with his family due to his deal with AEG, but they still tried to convince him that they were the right men to manage his business affairs for the upcoming tour. Joseph wanted to wrestle control away from AEG. Because he thinks that he has the power of an entire bit, like an entire company behind him. I'm the only one who can do them right, he reportedly told gossip columnist Roger Freeman on a phone call a few weeks earlier. Joe and Roe brought along a pre-prepared letter that they wanted Michael to sign, which would appoint Roe as his representative all of his entertainment matters. Under pressure from his father, who was standing over him, Michael signed the letter, but he changed the wording to only give Roe permission to oversee the tour's finances. Four weeks later, Michael was persuaded by his mother to take another meeting with Joe and Roe, who were still trying to sign him up for reunion shows He explained to him for the final time that he was locked in the contract with AEG. Why can't Joseph get this through his head? And the days after the meeting, Michael sent a letter to Roe, which read, This is to inform you that you do not represent me and I do not wish to have any oral or written communication with you regarding the handling of my business and or personal matters. The entire situation was deeply confusing and even Randy Phillips found that it was difficult to keep track of who was in and who was out. You needed a scorecard, he said. According to the BBC, in May 2009, AEG hired Dr. Conrad Murray to be Jackson's personal physician. Ahead oh. of Yeah. Ahead of the 50-date concert residency. This is it in London. He reportedly was promised a $150,000 per month salary to keep the performer healthy for the comeback tour. In May, Murray began his work as Jackson's personal physician. Now, I'm bringing this up because it was in his Wikipedia, (laughs) which is that by this time, Murray had apparently fathered seven children by six different women. He was in arrears on the mortgage for his Las Vegas home occupied by his first wife and children. And he owed child support to the mothers of children outside of his marriage, which he could not pay due to the amount of money that he owed to Michael Jackson's family. He was married to Blanche, his second wife, who met at medical school and helped pay rent for another woman, Nicole Alvarez. Murray met Alvarez at a gentleman's club in Las Vegas, where she was employed. And Alvarez gave birth to their son, Che Giovanni Murray in March 2009. Another relationship was with a cocktail waitress from Houston. Huh. Murray was also at risk of losing his California medical license due to unpaid child support to one of his children and owed $13,000 to a California woman, Nanita Malaberian. Murray was a defendant in numerous civil lawsuits, although none of them were medical malpractice. By 2008, he had accumulated over $600,000 in court judgments against him for medical equipment and unpaid rent for his practices in Texas and Nevada. He also owed $71,000 for student loans at his medical college, and Murray filed for bankruptcy in 2002 in California. Murray expected to go back to jail in September. So now that you have A little bit of insight into who conrad murray is let's talk about the final two months on may 20th 2009 aeg announced that it had to push back the beginning of the tour by five days meaning that three of the shows had to be moved from july 2009 to march 2010 and i would have been pissed if that was my ticket no kid uh and it was actually at the behest of kenny ortega explaining that he needed an extra week to get the show ready because it had gotten so big that it required more rehearsal time in London. And I, I when I explain to you guys about the show, you'll probably understand what I mean by it. Although, although I,
4: I had tickets to a very, uh, at the time, very big uh, concert that got put off for six months, probably.
3: What
1: was it? It
4: did, it did say it was uh, the Eagles when they first got back together. Hell oh, Freezes okay. Over tour. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow nice yeah because uh, glenn fry had diverticulitis um. and so they were supposed to play in charlotte north carolina and i had i had uh, tickets and they had to come off the road for several months and that included that show so i mean i, I eventually saw the show but it was uh, months and months and my, a, a six seven eight month delay or, or pushback Oof. and it did suck yeah because you're like oh yeah i felt- Finally get to see the Eagles after all this time. No, he's got dookie pockets in his intestines. Great. Awesome. Boo.
3: Well, the thing is, is that Kenny actually requested this, but the media did what it did and spun the idea that it was delayed due to Michael's health. And some of them were just spinning the most ridiculous story. Like he was fighting skin cancer. He's making demand for elephants, monkeys, and parrots to accompany him on stage and that he planned to sing a duet with his 12-year-old son's friends, whatever. Like, But the most outrageous thing of all is that it was an actual body double that had appeared at the press conference on March 5th. And then, pe- yeah, people were reminded that Michael had been using a wheelchair to go shopping as recently as the previous summer. And they were speculating on whether Michael could turn up for opening night, much less 50 shows. But the show began to take shape, and the overall costs ballooned. They were supposed to be capped at 7.5 million, but the final cost was closer to 25 million. Oh my! It's just he can't help himself from spending no. all this money. This was described yes, as yes, you've most- exceeded
4: you've exceeded the seven and a half million dollar cap by quite a quite a, uh, quite a bit.
3: Over three times, over three times the amount mm-hmm. that you were allotted. It was described as the most technologically advanced and the most expensive arena show ever mounted. Believe it. The $5 million dome project consists of series, a series of 2D and 3D films was a major factor in that budget increase. The films were to be projected onto a huge LED screen behind the stage at different moments during the shows, creating the first 3D concert experience in history. I thought all concerts that you attended were 3D.
4: Well, yeah. Technically, they are, because...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Unless something is horribly wrong with the world around you.
3: Or you have no depth perception. (laughs) Yeah, there's that. Michael insisted to Ortega that the show's opening had to be something that nobody had ever seen or done before. The concept that they chose was an LED video experience. Michael was to float on the stage in a bodysuit made of screens flashing with historical television images before emerging and starting the show with wannabe starting something. For his grand stage exit, Michael came up with MJ Air, which was a plan to depart through a hole in the screen, giving the impression that he had boarded a jet and flown away. Smooth Criminal was set to start with a short 2D film, which made it look like Michael was appearing with Humphrey Bogart and Rita Hayworth in an old film noir. He was shot against a green screen at Culver Studios in early June, and they were supposed to be digitally inserted into all those sequences. Thriller was also supposed to be a 3D interactive experience recreating the famous zombie scene from the 1983 video. The film was designed to act as a backdrop while Michael danced on stage. Toward the end, Michael would emerge from underneath a giant black spider prop which transformed from the screen before transforming into the Thriller dance with zombies. Michael wanted those puppets to drop from the ceiling and fly over the audience through the walkways, which he called the 4D experience. It just sounds chaotic. It sounds like beautiful, beautiful chaos. But Earth Song was a video that was the most important to Michael. The money and the performing for his children were the only motivations for doing the tour. He also felt that he had an important message to give. He felt now more than ever that his music applied to our world situation, Ortega explained. He wanted to use the stage as a platform to remind people the importance of us doing whatever we can to take care of this planet and to take care of each other.
4: Hey, as far as all this, 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 elaborate stage props go was there at any point a threat that a set of stonehenge was going to be crushed by a dwarf <laughs> uh,
3: thank you for that
1: no problem. <laughs> no
3: problem in the <laughs> this one goes up to 11 in the first week of june 2009 michael spent most mornings on set at culver studios to film the pieces for the dome project at the same time, rehearsals moved from center stage to one of Los Angeles' biggest spots for sports and concerts, which I've never been to, but I've been near and we always fly over, which is the Forum in Inglewood. Have you ever seen anything at the Forum, Hun? i I'm trying to remember if I did. I I don't know if I actually have. Because it shares a parking lot with, with a Hollywood Park, didn't it? Yeah, it's all the same, but Hollywood Park got sold,
1: I think, so... Well was also the, the form not is that not
3: where the Lakers play? No. no they play at the Center. They play at the Staples Center. Staples Center, which okay. is yeah. which is not the Staples Center anymore because that's where we sell new kids on the block. It's called the Crypto Arena, which I I will call it Staples Center till I die. Yeah, Sorry. that's what I know it as so. <laughs> Preparations had advanced to the point where it was time to put the show up on its feet and staging the phases at a larger venue. Michael was now expected to step up and show up more regularly for rehearsals, but he failed to attend a lot he missed more rehearsals than the production team would have liked him to when he did show for rehearsals it was usually beginning late in the afternoon after his sessions with Travis Payne that could last up to seven hours so he's already doing early morning rehearsals with Travis to get the choreography down and then he goes to the arena later to work with the dancers and the musicians and all that michael missed several rehearsals in the first two weeks of june much to the frustration of kenny ortega and the production team after michael struggled at rehearsals on friday june the 12th and skipped the saturday session on the order of his doctor an increasingly concerned ortega sent an email out to uh paul gongway which i've talked about before and that's one of the AEG executives Here's the, metal, here's the email that he sent out. MJ did not have a good Friday, and he did not show up on Saturday. He has been habitually late. I realize that he's up against a lot. I have a ton of love and sympathy for what he's been going through, but we must do all we can as a team to stay on top of his needs every day. You require more attention and management. As I mentioned, I truly believe he needs more nourishment, guidance, and physical therapy for his fatigued muscles and injuries. He's not in great physical shape. I believe he's hurting. He's been slow at grabbing a hold of the work. We have 20 days and we cannot let him slip. I'm doing all I can every day to build up his confidence and create a schedule that will help him ready him and arrive us at our goals. Every time he's late or cancels, it slows that possibility. There can be no more calls asking Travis to come to his house. MJ needs to be told that it's time to get real. He must take care of himself so that he can meet the schedule or there are going to be consequences. We need a healthy, rested, and ready MJ at the Forum and Staples for all the remaining rehearsals, as well as the few that we have at the O2 in July. So they were not messing around.
4: Yeah, yeah, he, he kept it very real there. And, and, and gave you a little peek into a couple of things. One, that Michael uh, did not seem to be well and that he did not seem to be in physically good enough shape at this point to uh, do the work.
3: Correct. It's, um, it's almost ominous and scary. A little.
4: Yeah, it is. Especially when you know what's coming, but, it, but also that. It's almost kind of, uh, uh, kind of sad. Like if you go back uh, to last year, when we were talking about Eddie Van Halen and there was the last tour they did with Sammy Hagar where it sounded like Eddie was in bad shape for a lot of it and wasn't playing well. And there was just an aspect of that that was really sad that this person who was so gifted, so unbelievably, one of the most talented musicians ever at at the end of that tour, they were basically turning his, turning him down in the mix. So you couldn't hear him because that's how bad he was playing. And now he ended up bouncing back and, and, and finished on on as high a note as you could um, on on their last couple of tours. But there was, you know, there was a, a very down, Part to that, and now you're 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 talking about one of the most gifted entertainers, gifted and, and most I would say riveting on stage presences. Aside from maybe who James Brown, a few others, but these top piece in the top handful to ever do it. And and here's a guy telling you, yeah, you know, he 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 almost can, he can't really do this anymore. He's in such bad shape he can't he can't do that. Yeah, he he's phys, physically he can't do this. But vocally he can't do this. That that's that he's you know what I mean like this is it's ominous yeah because we know what's common but it's also sad that the guy who's done this his whole life and he's one of the best ever do it he like he's almost incapable of of doing this anymore for a lot of reasons and I'm sure you'll expound on some of those coming up but
3: yeah I mean it feels like a well that is not ready to be tapped out that is just dry. By the third week of June, Michael was absent from the forum almost on a daily basis. On June 16th, the meeting was held at the Carrollwood Mansion. Ortega and Randy Phillips and Paul Gongaware were going to discuss... With Michael, his lack of focus and poor attendance at rehearsal. Michael was wearing a surgical mask, sunglasses, and he looked scared before the meeting. In that meeting, it was reiterated to Michael that he needed to start showing up partly for the sake of the dancers and the band. Michael wasn't only the performer, but he was also the co-director of the show, so Ortega required his presence. Paul, who had previously acted as tour manager on both the Dangerous and the History Tours, said that he was never alarmed by Michael's absence Michael didn't like to rehearse. It didn't surprise me, he said. Michael barely rehearsed for his history tour, but he still nailed it. I knew that when the house lights went up, he was going to be there, he added. When it's game time, he would show up. What caused the most alarm was Michael's sudden weight loss. He weighed 136 and was acting strangely. 100- 136,
4: oh yeah, that's that's gaunt. Yes. That, that's scary, that's scary, fam. Yeah,
3: 136 would be scary. Scary for me at my height <laughs> and he's so, he
4: he actually gets thinner than that before the very end doesn't he
3: he yeah he gets i think he we don't really talk a lot more about his weight loss this is pretty he, he much bottoms it.
4: out in the one about he bottoms out in the 120s
3: yeah as I, I rec- as
4: I recall from from when he died
3: yeah i uh i don't have his Weight at death. I don't have a lot about his autopsy. Yeah, I, so I want to say much... it was
4: about 125 pounds.
3: It doesn't shock me because he's always been lean his entire life, and he was on a microbiotic diet. So it doesn't. But that's me.
4: that's beyond the pale, thing though. That that's, that's... yeah.
3: Because yeah. even at even at five ten, that would be ridiculous. Be way underweight. Yeah. Yeah. So by June, those are around him on a daily basis, including his chef Kai Chase and Karen Fay and Travis Payne were among those that noticed his physical appearance had suddenly changed. He was great in April, and he did not look good in June, Chase recalls. He appeared very weak and looked much thinner and undernourished, and he didn't look as well as I had seen him before. They say Michael also began to behave oddly, but basically saying the same things over and over again.
4: Began? What's that? Began to behave oddly? Well yes
1: casually
3: gesture
4: to the last 20 episodes
3: well it's like repeating himself it wasn't the man that that people knew started
4: acting Um, differently
3: he acted yeah he was he was not himself he was not himself we'll just say that michael's drug use which we really haven't touched a lot on because again it's not easy to find information about it in the books that i was reading i have like eight Nine books that I've been reading, and no one really touches on any of his drug use, but that was becoming a big concern. At some rehearsals, Michael would appear, and this is a Travis Payne recalling that Michael would appear a little loopy and under the influence of something. Mostly when he would arrive straight from the Beverly Hills Clinic of his longtime dermatologist, Dr. Arnold Klein. Between April and June, Michael made eighteen visits to see Dr. Klein, who was injecting his face with Botox and facial fillers to prepare him. For his return to the stage occasionally and that was in some big old bunny years on occasion would give michael the opioid painkiller Demerol, which he had been addicted to in the past to sedate him during procedures examination of michael records show that he was receiving as much as 375 milligrams of the pill in 90 minutes more than seven times the recommended dose dr waldman A specialist in medical addiction said that this amount would leave Michael sleepy and lethargic and possibly difficult to arouse and unresponsive. Just as a side note, Dr. Wallman stated that he consulted with a dermatologist who told him that shots of Botox and other face fillers were not painful enough to warrant the use of Demerol, although Michael was known for having a very low pain tolerance. But still, like seven times the recommended dose? Holy crap. How would anyone sign off on that? That's crazy. Yeah, you give somebody enough money, I guess. I don't know. One thing Michael managed to hide from just about everyone apart from Dr. Murray was his struggles with insomnia. Michael had trouble sleeping during the tour, and we have actually talked about that before. Like, he would dump it all on the stage and not be able to unwind, and then he would get stressed out because he knew that he needed to be refreshed so he could do the next show, and it was just this constant cycle of, like, having to be up and having to be down. And and this time was no different. I'm going to butcher this name, Dr. Charles Zeiler, a Harvard medical sleep expert, believed that Michael's tour insomnia had possibly been part psychological. He may have slept a little bit more than he thought. From his point of view, he couldn't sleep well when he was on tour. And then he would draw a correlation between the two of them. I'm on tour. I can't sleep, you know, and this would produce anxiety. Related to sleep and associated with being on tour and it made him very concerned about the impact. Dr. Waldman said the insomnia might have been worsened by withdrawal symptoms from Demerol as he wasn't receiving it every day. On Friday, June 19th, Michael showed up for what was scheduled to be the last rehearsal at the Forum, but he was not fit to even step on stage. Kenny Ortega said that the Michael that he saw that night frightened him he was cold. I observed Michael like I've never seen him before. It troubles me deeply. He appeared lost, cold, and afraid. I felt like Michael was in trouble and needed help. Ortega went on to say, I thought there was something emotional going on, something deeply emotional and something physical going on, he admitted. Ortega didn't understand how Michael could end up in such a condition because he had Dr. Murray taking care of him 24-7. Kenny and Karen say that they tried to warn Michael. When I say warm, I mean like warm him up. He looked cold. Kenny and Karen said they tried to warm up Michael, who was shaking so badly that he could barely hold a knife and a fork when they gave him some food. Karen ended up putting a heater by his feet, and Ortega said that he sat down on the floor and took off Michael's shoes and started rubbing his feet. And then that was when Michael divulged that he had never had a foot massage before, but Kenny found that unbelievable. Michael requested that he be able to sit out on rehearsal and watch while Travis Payne took his place. Kenny suggested that he should head home a little early. As soon as he was out of the building, an email was fired off by John Hogdal, and I'm probably, again, killing that, and uh, he fired that email off to Randy Phillips. It said, I'm not being a drama queen here. Kenny asked me to notify you both. MJ was sent home without stepping foot on stage. He was a basket case and Kenny was concerned that he was embarrass himself on stage or worse be hurt. The company is rehearsing now, but the doubt is pervasive. Time to circle the wagons. What followed was several emails back and forth between Phillips and John and Kenny and all were basically saying that Michael had deteriorated. At one point, he was able to do multiple 360 spins back in April But now if he tried, he would fall on his butt. What they did following that incident was they basically called a summit, which took place the next afternoon at the Carrollwood Estate. Ortega and Phillips began sharing their concerns with Michael and Dr. Murray, but the doctor became angry with Ortega, telling him that he had no right to descend upon Michael's home. Michael was physically and emotionally capable of handling all the responsibilities for the show. Michael was physically, emotionally capable of handling all of his responsibilities for the show. Ortega recalls, I was shocked because Michael didn't appear to be physically or emotionally stable at that moment. Murray told Ortega to stick to his job and leave Michael's health matters to him. Oi! On Tuesday, June 23rd, rehearsals moved from the Forum to the Staples Center in downtown Los Angeles, which was a closer example of the O2 Arena in London. Eight rehearsals were scheduled to take place at Staples. Then the crew would fly to London on the 5th of July, allowing for five days of rehearsals at the O2 Arena before the opening of the show, July 13th. When Michael showed up at the Staples Center that Tuesday night, he kept his promise. He was invigorated. Kenny Ortega could scarcely believe what was folding on, unfolding on the stage in front of him. He entered to rehearsals full of energy, full of desire to work, full of enthusiasm, and it was a different Michael Ortega recalled. The director even began to wonder if he had seen a problem that didn't exist. I doubted myself, he admitted. I remember going, did I see something that could have been there? Because Michael just didn't seem like the Michael that he had seen on the 19th. He was raring to go fired up and in charge. On Wednesday, Michael arrived at Staples at 6.30 p.m. for a meeting with Randy Phillips. The AEG president Tim Lewicki and television producer Ken Ehrlich. Hey, we know of Ken Ehrlich, right, honey? Yeah, yeah, that
1: uh, I can't remember what he's done, but the name's come up a lot.
3: Well, we actually saw him in person for the Paul Simon salute to Paul oh, Simon. That's right. He was a producer. That's right. He was the producer for that. Yeah. He's he's an amazing producer. They discussed plans for a Halloween television special to be broadcast on CBS on October 31st, 2009, which Ehrlich would produce. Uh, Michael wanted to combine his 1996 film Ghosts with segments of his live stage performance of Thriller in London. Then he spent the next half hour reviewing the 3D segments for This Is It before stepping on stage around 9.30 for rehearsals. Over the course of three hours, Michael performed around a dozen songs showing similar levels of energy and focus to the previous evening. The very last song he sang that night was Earth Song. Then Michael sat down with Kenny Ortega as they watched Travis Payne go through the Heel the World rehearsals so he could observe the lighting, staging, and scenic elements for the song. At the end of the session, Michael would have a communal hug with Ortega and Payne before returning to his dressing room. Ortega was elated with Michael. He had this sudden transformation that was kind of amazing. He knew that they were over the hump. As they were walking out of the arena at around 12.30 a.m., Philip said that he felt like a million dollars when Michael told him, now I know I can do this. Thank you for getting me this far. I can take it from here. On Thursday, Michael was due to begin rehearsals for the illusion that would transition Dirty Diana into Beat It. Uh, During Dirty Diana, Michael was to perform on a bed surrounded by flames being pursued by a pole dancing female aerialist who would eventually catch him and tie him to the bedpost. A series of flames and like this gossamer fabric would obscure him before revealing the female dancer. Michael would start beat it by floating over the audience in a cherry picker. Again, this just sounds like beautiful chaos. Yes, marvelously orchestrated chaos. Mm -hmm. Yes, $25 million worth of chaos. As Michael left Staples that night, Ortega told him that he would have everything prepared for him for the next evening. He felt like they were accomplishing a dream he saw before him in those rehearsals. And emotional Ortega recalled that he asked me to thank everybody, to tell them that he loved them, the dancers, the singers, the band, the crew. I told him that I would have everything prepared for him the next day so he could just step right into the illusion rehearsal. And I told him that I loved him and he told me that he loved me more and I gave him a big hug and we left the building. The drive home from Staples Center usually takes around 30 minutes, and as usual, a dozen fans were camped outside the front of his house to greet him when he returned. He was in good spirits, so he rolled down his window and chatted with a couple fans before driving through the gates. But after stepping through the front door and returning to his bedroom, his mood changed. As always, after giving so much heart and soul and putting it out on the stage, it was really hard for him to wind down. At 1.30 a.m., Michael took a shower, and Dr. Murray tried to put him to sleep with a tablet that is commonly known as Valium, a drug with sedative properties. When this failed, Murray gave Michael some stronger—and I'm going to mess these boards up. I'm sorry. Benzodiazepines. Michael did fall asleep, but just for a few minutes. And after about ten minutes, he was wide awake again.
1: Now, to be clear, he's there physically giving him these pills, correct?
3: Yeah, he's In not like—he's not weird. like weird. Okay. Yeah, I mean, well, he's supposed to be taking care of Michael 24-7. So I think he's at this point living with him. By 4.30 a.m., Michael began to get desperate. I got to sleep, he told Murray. I had the rehearsals to perform and I have to be ready for the show in England. Tomorrow I have to cancel my performances. I can't function if I don't get the sleep. Murray tried more lorazepam and midazolam. I have no idea. These are medical words. He's taken like three different kinds of pills. By 10.40 a.m., Michael was still not asleep. It was then that he told Murray, I'd like to have some milk. And the milk that Michael was referring to was propofol that's supposed to only be used in hospital settings. Murray reminded Michael that he had to be awake by noon, and he probably should just skip trying to sleep. Like if, if he was to be put down, it would be even harder to wake him back up, but Michael responded, just make me sleep. Doesn't matter what time I get up. Murray admitted that he had been giving Michael Profoval every night for eight weeks to deal with insomnia. Michael was familiar with the drug because he had used it for the same purpose in the summer of 1997 while touring in Europe and recording Invincible. And we've talked about that. I mean, he's got a history with this drug. Because he was receiving the drug from a doctor, Michael believed that it was safe. Over 48 hours earlier, Murray had begun to his attempt to wean Michael off propofol giving him less and less of that and more of the lorazepam and the midazom, mid, midazolam 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 Manamana. on Tuesday night Michael slept reasonably well using only the benzodiazepines which might explain why he was so invigorated at rehearsal Despite successfully getting Michael to sleep without propofol the previous night, Murray gave in to his demands. I decided to go ahead and give him some of the milk so he could get a couple hours sleep so he could produce because I cared about him, Murray explained. The doctor administered 25 milligrams of propofol, slowly infusing it through an IV saline drip in Michael's leg. By 11 a.m. as the drug surged through his bloodstream, Michael finally drifted off into a false sleep. Phone records show that after administering the propofol, Murray was busy talking to several people, including a girlfriend, between 11.18 and 12.05 p.m. When he returned to the bedroom, he found that Michael wasn't breathing and his pulse was barely detectable. It's quite possible that Michael had stopped breathing at least 45 minutes earlier. Murray started to perform CPR and mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on the bed and later claimed that he couldn't move Michael off the bed on his own, but there was no response. Murray said he didn't call 911 immediately because the landline in the house wasn't working, even though he had access to a cell phone. Murray did manage to read Michael Amir Williams, who was still at his home in downtown Los Angeles using his cell. But instead of asking him to call 911, he told William to call, Williams to call Michael's security detail located in a trailer outside the property. At 1215, a security guard Alberto Alvarez took a call from Williams and sprinted up to the bedroom before asking him to call 911. Murray told Alvarez to place vials from beside the bedside cabinet in a bag and remove any IV drips from its stand, plus what appeared to be a bottle of propofol. Finally at 12:21, Alvarez called 911. And pretty much for the first time I think ever on the show, I'm actually going to play a 911 call. So this is the 911 call placed on the day of Michael Jackson's death. Fire Medic
6: 33, what is your address for emergency? Yes, sir. I need to. Uh, uh, I need an ambulance as soon as possible, sir. Okay, sir. What's your address? It's 100 North Carolwood Drive, Los Angeles, California, 90077. You said Carolwood? Carolwood Drive, yes. Yes. Okay, sir. What's the phone number you're calling from? Okay, sir. sir. And what's the uh, sir, I have a, we have a, a, a gentleman here that needs help, and he's not breathing yet. He's not breathing, and we're need to. we p- trying to pump him, but he's, not, he's okay. not breathing, sir. Okay. How old is he? He's uh, 50 years old, sir. 50. Okay. He's unconscious. He's not breathing? Yes, he's not breathing, sir. Okay. And he's not conscious either? He's not no, he's breathing. not conscious, sir. Okay. All right. Do you have anyone, is he on the floor? Where's he at right now? He's on the bed, sir. He's on the bed. Okay. Let's get him on the floor. Okay. Okay, let's get him down to the floor. I'm going to help you with CPR right now, okay? We need him. To get, we need to yes, we're away. already on our way there. We're on our way. I'm going to do as Thank much as I sir. can to help you over the phone. We're already Thank on our way. Did anybody see him? Yes, we have a personal doctor here with him, sir. Oh, you but, have uh, a doctor there? Yes, but he's not responding to anything. To no, no, he's not responding to CPR or anything, sir. Oh, okay. Well, we're on our way there. If you're guys doing CPR and you're instructed by a doctor, he has a higher authority than me. And he's Thank there on scene. Okay. Um, what happened uh no just the doctor sir the doctor's been the only one here okay so the doctor see what happened uh um doctor did you see what happened sir and, uh, sir you just uh, um if you can please uh, oh, yeah, we're on our way we're on our way i'm just i'm just passing these questions on to my uh, paramedics while they're on the way there sir thank you sir uh, he's pumping he's pumping his chest but he's not responding to anything sir please okay okay we're on our okay. way we'll, we're, we're, we're less than a mile away we'll be there shortly thank you sir thank you sir. okay sir
3: all right. So that was the 911 call from Alvarez at the behest of Murray. Do you guys notice anything weird about that? It seemed really inconsistent. I've never heard the call, actually. This is the first time I've
1: ever heard it, which is odd because wasn't it used during a subsequent trial regarding Jackson's death?
3: Yeah. Well, what's what's strange is that the 911 operator actually says, well, if there's a doctor already there, he's got a higher authority than me. Yeah, it, it, it's yeah, and this Conrad Murray
1: guy. Oh my God! I mean, I know it, it gets worse with him, but uh, yeah, he's got this guy. He's got Michael Jackson under twenty-four hour care. He gives him a lethal substance and just leaves him there for a couple hours. You know, it's like what?
3: <laughs> yeah, if if you're administering a drug like that, you need to you watch have to them. Yeah, yeah, you've got you've got to watch them. You've he. We'll get into other stuff in a sec. I just get really infuriated when I'm talking about this. Murray was actually only, in the call, you can hear the 911 operator saying, like, you need to move him to the floor. But Murray was only just moving Michael to the floor with the help of Alvarez when paramedics arrived at 1226 p.m. They treated Michael at the scene for nearly 40 minutes, trying to give him heart-starting drugs. Paramedic Richard Sneff began to think that Michael had been dead for a while. At 12.57 p.m., he spoke to a doctor and gave him permission to pronounce Michael Jackson. Murray claimed he could feel a pulse and demanded that he be taken to the nearby Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center in Westwood. Michael was loaded onto an ambulance and transferred to the hospital, but it was too late. Dr. Michael Cooper, who attended to Michael at UCLA, said that he was clinically dead upon arrival at 1.13 p.m. After further resuscitation attempts, Michael was officially pronounced dead at 2.26 p.m. Over at the Staples Center, Kenny Ortega was busy preparing the illusion rehearsal. His phone rang, and it was Paul Gongaware. Our boy is gone, Paul told him. Ortega didn't actually believe that it was Paul on the phone, and he asked him to tell him something that only the two of them would know to prove that it was really him. He said, you have to sit down, and you have to get a hold of yourself. Paul told him, listen to me, Michael is gone. Ortega collapsed in his seat and began crying before gathering the rest of the team in a circle to tell them of Michael's passing. TMZ broke the news of Michael's death at 2.44 p.m. Pacific. That's 10.44 London time. Only 18 minutes after. So the doctors officially pronounced him dead.
4: So quickly that they have to have had someone inside that tipped him, I'm guessing.
3: But also, there was this big to-do, and I fully and behind them when they say this the family wasn't notified first before the rest of the friggin world knew about it that's messed right. up i've never been so pissed off at the paparazzi well i have it was princess diana but that's a completely different story
4: if they get it that quickly then then they obviously somebody tipped them from inside right they had they had to the have. you yeah. Can imagine yeah but yeah.
3: but think about like th- this had to be there's a conspiracy theory some buried somewhere in here because if you think about it, they had to have somebody that was at the house tip off TMZ because he was already pronounced dead once he arrived at the hospital,
4: or somebody at the hospital, or somebody inside nine one one.
3: They never said who it was on the nine one one call.
4: Oh, okay, I, I have trouble hearing when y'all yeah. played that, but um, yeah, or, or somebody at the hospital, I'm, or somebody, I'm, or or, I'm, some, or or somebody in the coroner's office. Any person who's attached to it, who would, who anybody who had, who was privy to the information, you know, yeah. it, it was, it was, it had to be one of them. Yeah, that tipped them, and I, I don't know if they pay for tips or how, or how that works with them, but
3: I don't know. But yeah, there was, there's to definitely to get the scoop even. to
4: get the scoop on the biggest pop star in history dying. I would imagine you, there was probably a little cash attached to that.
3: Well, you remember that someone actually took a picture of him dead in the bed and then sold that, right? So yeah. I, if you can tell i'm pretty pissed off about that, that they're so evasive and they're parasites if you're a paparazzi please don't subscribe to our show i i find you vile and detestable
4: but but uh, but you could give us money at patreon
3: yeah, no i don't even want their money on patreon i'm i'm holding steady i don't want anything from them i i i find them to be lower than phil collins well. okay now Paparazzi are lower than John and Max Landis. That coming from you is the ultimate. Okay, well,
4: ultimate that, that's attempt. really saying something coming from you, yeah.
3: Yeah. They're, they're worse than that. They're worse than John and Max Landis. Ugh. Um, so, family members rushed to the UCLA Medical Center to join Michael's three children. Frank DeLeo and Randy Phillips, who were already there, were among the others that uh, were welcomed into the circle. By 4 p.m., 4 p.m., that's an hour and 15 minutes after he was pronounced dead, thousands upon thousands of people had gathered outside. Michael's passing instantly triggered a global outpouring of grief. Now, here's something else that we're going to do. I'm going to let you listen to the progression of CNN's coverage of this. Now, it's, it's not a really long clip. Don't worry. It's only about two and a half minutes, I think. So let me just pull it up but I want you to see how it goes from just the progression of his well-being and his status. And this is over, I think only two hours of coverage, but uh, let's just listen to how CNN covered the news of Michael Jackson.
0: We're getting some breaking news coming into the situation right now from uh, about Michael Jackson, the King of Pop, who's 50 years old. Let's go to Deborah Farrick. She's working the story for us. What are we picking up, Deb? Well,
3: well, here's what we can tell you. This is what's being reported uh, by KTLA. Apparently, Michael Jackson suffered cardiac arrest this afternoon. He was rushed to UCLA Medical Center.
6: At 1221 this afternoon, the Los Angeles 911 operators took a call in regards to um, a need for a medical emergency uh, at the 100 block of Candlewood Drive, which is in West Los Angeles. Uh, When the paramedics got on scene, they, they treated the patient and then immediately transported the patient to a UCLA.
1: We just talked to Brian Oxman. He is the family attorney for the Jackson and, and he says that according to Randy Jackson, Michael Jackson's brother, Michael Jackson collapsed in his home in West Los Angeles this morning and they called paramedics. He says that uh, the family is either at UCLA
0: Medical Center or en route to UCLA Medical Center. CNN sources are now saying, multiple sources, that Michael Jackson is in a coma at UCLA Medical Center suffered uh, from cardiac arrest and is now in a coma.
6: If you look at the aerials that you're showing on air and you see the number of people that have already gathered outside the hospital if that is isn't testament to the star power of Michael Jackson I don't know what is
0: and we're just getting this in uh, right now uh, and, and it's a uh, very very sad news to uh, Jim Moray and to all of our viewers both the Los Angeles Times and CBS News are both now reporting that Michael Jackson has died CNN has not confirmed that but the LA Times and CBS News are reporting that Michael Jackson 50 years old the king of pop has died, uh, a very, very sad moment. What was Michael
5: Jackson doing in Los Angeles before he was taken to the hospital? What new information do you have for us? Well,
0: we do know
1: that he's been in Los Angeles preparing to uh, undertake this uh, major concert event that he was scheduled to perform in London. Uh, this I have coming to stop sam- you for a second,
5: uh, AJ. CNN can now confirm from the, uh, from the LA coroner that uh, Michael Jackson is dead. So you see the
3: progression of <clears throat> yeah. the information coming in from CNN and that was actually the situation room with Wolf Blitzer. And you, you can see like how people were spitting out information. I think like there was some sort of weird rush to be the first person to confirm it. And I think this, his death set a precedent to be the first, to be the first, like be the first on scene, get that scoop. And because of that, it's caused in the, the, the later years, we see that in the past as like the first one to get the scoop. Is just spitting out the information that they can, and they and then later on you find out like, oh, that's not true. Oh, that didn't happen that way. Oh, this. Is, well, this news
4: is-, is a very competitive business, and um, uh, I mean, I understand that the need to be first. you also have to be right. You have to yeah. be first and also be right. That's kind of a key.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, my brother is in the press, so I don't, I'm don't be listen the mega,
4: don't be the mega douche. Like, who is was it? Rolling Stone. Who, who announced that tom petty was dead and he was still alive
3: oh yeah and his daughter made them eat it right
4: they ripped him a new one which yeah. she should have good for her oh yeah yeah. it's like yeah but but again i, I understand the urge to be first that's news is a very competitive business and you want to establish yourself as being an, an authority and and you know and to you know bolster your, bolster your credentials on the on the back of Look, this was a giant. J- this was one of the biggest stories in the history of ever, and we we were the first ones to have it. I understand that you got to be right. Yeah, that's,
3: that's that's kind of a key. And of all the people in the world that are affiliated with news, I'm going to listen to you because you have been in the newspaper business for how many years now?
4: nine, nine full time, uh, nineteen, I guess.
3: Yeah, On radio right. for
4: a while before that.
3: But but, but you understand the concept of being right, not just being first because being first can sometimes cause a panic or confusion or sorrow. I mean, you know, there were people that when it was either when Michael Jackson died or when Bowie died, that people actually committed suicide afterwards because of Jeez. the news. So, <sighs> you know, Man. but also as the news spread you know, more and more people picked it up and and went across the wire. It caused unprecedented website issues from overloads. Both TMZ and the Los Angeles Times, which is the first news organization to confirm the death, at 3.15 p.m. suffered outages. Search engine Google initially believed that the input from millions of people searching for Michael Jackson meant that it was under attack. Twitter, Wikipedia, AOL Instant Messenger all reported crashes. It was really in the digital age one of the first things that was so big that it basically broke the internet.
4: It yes, it literally broke the internet. But I would also say that at that point, probably you know, Twitter's in its infancy. People were still using Messenger like a lot. That message boards were were. were we're still really big in 2009. I would say that that the actual hardware to accommodate that many people looking for something at one time was probably stretched to its limits. It was a worldwide phenomenon. There's probably a discernible percentage of the world's population that went to the internet like right then to look up information.
3: Oh, I would remember being on my my phone and it was like a really crappy like first gen smartphone. It wasn't even like an iPhone. It was like, a phone that you could connect to the internet with, if I remember correctly. And I remember reading it, like refreshing it. I'm pretty sure my bill was over like $300 that month for me just reading the articles about Michael Jackson's death, just like that day.
5: Yeah,
3: It set a precedent for worldwide news because when when 9-11 happened, we really didn't have the internet as well, as much as we did now. Like it was still kind of an emerging thing that... You could access, but it wasn't like completely taking over your life. And so for somebody to do this, like for as many people to search Michael Jackson, they didn't have the infrastructure for it. It crashed everything. He literally broke the internet. So Mm -hmm. thousands of vigils took place all over the world and tributes poured in from the likes of Barack Obama, Nelson Mandela. Dame Elizabeth Taylor was quoted as saying, my heart, my mind are broken I love Michael with all my soul and I can't imagine my life without him. We had so much in common. We had such loving fun together. I was packing up my clothes to go to London for his opening when I heard the news, I still can't believe it. Usher had always been an admirer of MJ and his works and they had a strong connection and they even performed together. Usher dedicated the performance to MJ as a tribute and imitated the dead steps from Billie Jean and uh, actually performed one of his songs. Celine Dion has always given Michael the place of her idol while paying him tribute. She told the story of how Michael inspired her to sing in English. And we all know that later they had a beautiful relationship in his memory. Celine performed Ben and man in the mirror. And it was something that would undoubtedly have made Michael proud. One of his best friends, Liza Minnelli said that Michael's death would not be without its controversies. And she said that when the autopsy comes out, all hell's going to break loose. So thank God we're celebrating him now. The day after Michael's death, a three-hour autopsy was performed on behalf of the Los Angeles County coroner by the chief medical examiner. Uh, while that was happening, a, a public memorial service was held on July 7th at the Staples Center in Los Angeles, attracting a global audience of up to 1 billion people. And I thought it was beautiful. Michael's five brothers were sitting in the front row. Each of them wore a white sequin glove in tribute. Mariah Carey, Stevie Wonder, Lionel Richie, Usher, and Brother Jermaine performed along with others, while Barry Gordy, Brooke Shields, and Spokey Robinson gave a eulogy. The Reverend Al Sharpton received a standing ovation when he told Michael's children, there was nothing strange about your daddy. It was strange what your, had, your daddy had to deal with. Additionally, an emotional Marlon said that we will never understand what he endured by being judged and ridiculed. How much pain can one take? Maybe now, Michael, they will leave you alone. The memorial perhaps is best remembered for the moment when Michael's 11-year-old daughter spoke for the first time publicly. So I just want to take a listen to what Paris had to say about her father at his memorial.
7: Ever since I was born, daddy has been the best father you could ever imagine. <laughs> and I just wanted to say I love him so much.
1: We, we want to thank you all for loving my brother and supporting our family. Thank you and good night.
3: Doesn't that break your heart?
1: Yeah, it's just raw and just, oh.
3: It's so sad. She is surrounded by her family and that is absolutely heartbreaking. Um. In Michael's will, which was signed in 2002, his mother, Catherine, was named as legal guardian for his children. His longtime attorney, John Bronca and his friend and former manager, John McClain, were uh, co-executors. The will divided Michael's estate into 40% for his mother, 40% for his children, and 20% for unspecified charities. On August 28th, the Los Angeles County Coroner made an official statement classifying Michael's death as a homicide after the drugs in his system were considered to be intravenous and injected by another. The county coroner stated that Michael died from acute propofol intoxication with the effects of the benzodiazepines drugs as a a contributor. I'll go ahead and say, I'm so sorry. I'm terrible at these giant medical words. I'm no good at it. And if you're a doctor or someone who knows how to actually properly pronounce these words, I'm sorry. I'm the worst as well as profofol uh, the three drugs that he had administered prior were found in his blood system with the combination of profofol and benzodiapans reached the lungs through the bloodstream they would have slowed the rate that the lungs inflated and deflated decreasing their ability to pump oxygen around the body the oxygen in the blood will have reached such a low level that it caused the heart to stop pumping and it was most likely that Michael suffered suffered from sleep deprivation for a total of eight weeks. The symptoms of chronic sleep deprivation include, and let's see if these sound familiar, weight loss and low body temperature, confusion, difficulty with balance and memory, including paranoia and anxiety. Does that sound familiar to what he showed up at in those rehearsals? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. completely. Yeah. Anyone that was around Michael in those last weeks knew that those were the exact symptoms that they were concerned about. Michael's service and burial took place at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale in Greater Los Angeles on September 3rd, 10 weeks to the day after his death, which I seriously thought that you just buried someone like three days after they died because that's how they do it in South Carolina, right, T? Uh,
4: generally, yeah.
3: Yeah, so I'm wondering what the the... Why 10 weeks? Now, you guys have heard me talk about Forest Lawn Cemetery before. Now, there's a Forest Lawn in Glendale and there's a Forest Lawn in Burbank. I think they're the same. They're owned by the same company. Mm -hmm. That is my, I won't say happy place, but that's the place where I go to clear my head and to think because it's so quiet and it's so peaceful. The view is beautiful. And, um, you know, if you're that kind of person, there's a lot of famous people buried in that cemetery. That's Gene Harlow, Humphrey Bogart clark gable all these people who are michael's heroes sammy davis jr and eventually elizabeth taylor was buried there and we've actually seen elizabeth taylor's um it's not a grave it's a what do you call that it's a mausoleum? giant no well it's not even a mausoleum it's like a statue inside like you can't take fo- like you're not allowed to take pictures inside where she's buried so See, i don't think i've been to that one yeah so you have right? you you, you were sure? there with me yeah so we I've found it old no, it was not the same trip. Okay. I don't okay. think it was the same. This is a while ago. Uh, in February of 2010, Murray was charged with involuntary manslaughter by prosecutors in Los Angeles. He pleaded not guilty and was released on bail. 11 months later, a judge determined that Murray should stand trial. November 2012, Murray was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter for administering Michael Too Much propofol, and he served two years of a four-year sentence. It was found that Murray had committed 17 egregious violations of the standards of care, which he defined as the act that posed a foreseeable danger to Michael's life. Those acts included a lack of modern equipment for his heart, his breathing and his blood pressure, and he failed to call 911 immediately. On October of 2013, Michael's family lost a negligence case against the concert promoter AEG over his death. The family contended that AEG was liable for Michael's death by hiring and retaining Murray as his personal physician. Although the jury decided that AEG did hire Murray, they found that he was not unfit or incompetent at the time for the job and so aeg had not been negligible in hiring him it might be a small comfort to fans that michael died just as he was about to show the world what they had been missing when he had been in isolation all those years the years that he spent in bahrain ireland las vegas or tucked away wherever he could find a spot where he might be left alone at the time of the death, he was back in the public eye and he was being treated like the king of pop. He was no longer the reclusive figure or the globe trotter that he had become in the aftermath of the 2005 trial. His passing made millions of people around the world put aside his eccentricities, the trials, the accusations, and just appreciate the man as an artist. But it can also be said, those elements enhance the notion that Michael Jackson was bigger than life, possibly the most famous person to ever walk the planet. I'm going to wrap up this series by leaving you with a quote from Michael. Music has been my outlet, my gift to all of the lovers in this world. Through it, my music, I know I will live forever. And that's the end of this series
4: no it's not you liar because you're
1: doing (laughs) not not exactly
3: shut up you dicks there's an appendix closing thoughts on the entire 21 part opus that has been Michael Jackson's whatever um I would
4: say it's it's very interesting and I took note of it when you said it early um I, I don't remember how far back but it's 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 a ways back he was reflecting on Elvis and he said that you know he didn't maybe it was an age thing or a time thing he, he didn't really connect with elvis's music respected him as an artist but appreciated what he accomplished but he specifically said but i don't want to be that i'm not going to be i'm not going to let happen to me what happened to him and it, it it's almost exactly i i mean literally almost exactly what happened to elvis is what happened to michael yeah he, and i mean in terms of surrounding himself with yes men pushing anybody out who said no to his own detriment ending up in a position where he had to take a certain set of drugs to get up and a certain set of pills to go to sleep and surrounded with sketchy doctors and all like i like lit almost literally like the 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 stories follow the exact same script he did exactly what he said he wasn't going to do and what he 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 consciously was telling himself, like, I'm. I don't want to go down that path. I'm never going to go down the, the path that Elvis did, and he did, like yeah. step for step, walked almost exactly in Elvis's footsteps, and including up to and including marrying his daughter, <laughs> just 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 as a throw in. But but in terms of of how he left us, and. I, the the bad choices that he made in terms of the people he put around him and and things of that nature it was almost exactly the same and if you think about it the two of the most for, for their time each each of them for their time probably the most famous person to ever live I would yeah. say yeah. and their 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 lives tragically ended both ended very early uh much too early and in almost exactly the same way and the, and the two of them lived lives that maybe only they lived maybe just they might be it maybe them and the beatles i, I mean there aren't many who know what that level of fame is like lady die there's there maybe a handful of others but it's not it's it's a very small uh handful incredibly talented to, to go from the poor abused kid in indiana to being the biggest star in the world just that in itself is an amazing story there's almost a a Greek tragedy to the story that you've told uh, over uh, uh, as much as we could about it very good job that you did telling this over over, over this 21 um, episodes that you know, this guy literally had it all the world he had the world at his fingertips and though something happened and part of it was mistrust of others and part of it was some poor choices he made but he went from almost literally having the world in the palm of his hand to you know his the record sales start to decline and the popularity declines a bit and he starts to you know he, he, he there's a detachment from reality it's like he didn't realize or either or, or didn't care that the, about the situation he was in in terms of yeah we've given you a million dollar budget only a million dollar budget to do your video. Well, well, well. That's how can I possibly do that? Okay. Well, um, now we're gonna we're we're giving you seven and a half million dollars to stage this concert at O2 Arena, and he spends twenty five million. That just demonstrates that, that you're detached from reality and you don't understand well basic economics, but you don't understand the financial situation that you're in, or you don't care, but you should have cared. <laughs> because you're running yourself 16 million dollars in the hole every single year and and that he the the his his last album the record label spent 50 million dollars recording and promoting it and somehow that wasn't enough to him and he said that they were racist because of it which is just garbage a garbage thing for him to say but it's almost a desperate thing for him to say You, you know what i'm saying like there were there were just there were things about him as immensely talented as he was and as much as I admire the work that he did and we're not even touching on some of the obvious things that we don't know whether they happened or not just from the professional standpoint and his life there there are just things he did that were so maddening he I don't think he grasped the, the reality of things at times it's what it seemed like especially toward the end and then the tragic end very much like Elvis who he said he didn't want to emulate so a kind of rambling summation of, of what i thought of it but it was a oh, kind of a rambling good. summation of his life
3: yeah no <laughs> that we just good. engaged in i i think everything that you said gets a valid point will mr thrill how are you going to wrap this series up we use the term tragedy and i
1: think the real tragedy of this whole thing is that michael jackson never led his own life he was always being steered Or pushed or in the best of circumstances guided and the worst manipulated by other people it started when he was a child with his father then it went to the record labels then it went to all the people that he had to sort of appease to keep up that image then it became you know the the debtors and then it became the court and it became the you know the public in general, even to the end of his life, when quite literally his life was in the hands of a very questionable man who was appointed by an organization that was pulling the strings. So I think there's you know an element of tinfoil hat there as well of, you know, did they do that? I know they weren't convicted. There was a lawsuit. I have to say I think the Jackson family was on base trying to go after them for that is there more to that story there may be that we never know but i think the true tragedy here is we think of artists as being very free and living the way they want to live i think it's a complete opposite of michael jackson completely he was always living according to someone else's rules.
4: do you and then if you even go to some of the stories and you you did a, a you know a great job pulling together a ton of um research and resources but there's i mean you you you, you like you've said before, we could literally just do this ad infinitum. We could talk about Michael Jackson from now until we stop doing a podcast. <laughs> um, yes. pretty much. There's that much information out there, but there's others that that really paint him in even and even more tragic of uh, light in terms of his temperament and the, yeah, just the way that. Um, and, well, if you if you read the, the and I, I mentioned it before, Howard Stern's account of meeting with him, where it, it looked as though his face was melting, and he asked, it looked like his his nose was not present and that he wanted someone to to hold his hand and walk into the bathroom to go pee yeah that there was almost this child like beyond i mean like a a young childlike mentality that he had and it's it's that that would be and, and again you don't know what what part of that's real and what part of it's fabricated i don't know but yeah i think i think will made some some good points there that he was he was under his father's thumb and then he was under the you know, record labels thumb and then uh, under the thumb of, of doctors and sheet and uh, a baby of uh, kind of sketchy characters toward the, toward the end. And, and I don't, I don't know that he ever really got to live the life he wanted because it sounded like, it, especially toward the end, what the life he really wanted was was film and that, that never happened. And also at a certain point, it should have been obvious to him. It wasn't realistic, but he kept chasing it. You know, but that, that, that was, uh, there were a lot of things, but you're the one who called all this and pu- pulled it all together. What's, what's your final thought on it?
3: Okay. I don't think that it's any surprise what I'm about to say. I was a fan of Michael Jackson. I have always been a fan of Michael Jackson. My very first dance recital I ever did was to ABC. And I remember mom teaching me that dance. And I remember that moment with my mom. And it's one of my favorite moments. And I was going to perform it at a retirement home uh, because my mom said that they would love that music. And so, you know, pretty much all my life, I've had Michael Jackson's music. And there is a Michael Jackson song for every emotion. You have the kitschy songs like Thriller, and then you have Human Nature, which is just so beautiful. You have something... Angry, like leave me alone, and visceral, like they don't really care about us. You have scream, you have remember the time I could just sit here all day and just list off Michael Jackson songs because he has been that pervasive in my life. I will still not speak on the charges because we weren't there. We don't know what happened. And I'm never one to say he's innocent or victim blame or, you know, anything like that. I will have some opinions on leaving Neverland. But for me, before diving into this, I only knew about the stuff that I saw in the media. And these books really gave me an insight. These documentaries gave me an insight on who he really was. And in the end, I think he still, to the day he died, that little boy who pushed aside furniture in his living room to practice dance moves with his brother. He never got the chance to be a kid. And so when he finally hit it, he spent all of his money trying to get back something that we all want, and that's a childhood. And I I think that in the beginning, no one ever said no to them. And that carried over for the rest of his life. He wasn't used to being told no. And so do I think he might've been a spoiled brat? Yeah. You know, who, you know how much I could do with $7 million? What kind of show I could put on for $7.5 million? I could put on one hell of a show. But I just think that in the end, he just never got the chance to be a kid, that was taken from him. I feel like the real villain, every story has to have a villain and the villain to me will always be Joe Jackson. I I think I, I love his mom, Catherine. She supported him. She tried to keep that family together. She was the glue of that family. And Joe Jackson, every turn, tried to do what was best for Joe Jackson. And so in the end, uh, I think that Michael... Was someone who never got the opportunity to cut loose, really? And you know, as a as a kid, and once he was given all that freedom, heck yeah! I mean, seriously, like I was never allowed to date or to go out and do things when I was a kid. Uh, my first date, I kid you not, was I was it was my prom, <laughs> and that was my first date. And I think TJ, you can back me up on that. Uh, yes, I was very sheltered. And when I went to college, holy crap, did I go to college? I discovered beer and boys and just, you know, I was, I I was uh, a freak. (laughs) I was, I was let loose on a world with a wallet full of cash and a lot of free time. And boy, howdy, did I appreciate being 18. And I think in a lot of ways, in the end, Michael just wanted the life he wanted. And I don't know if he ever got that. And he was forced to do so much and he was under somebody's thumb his entire life. And he relied on people his entire life. And uh, I can definitely tell that I am babbling, but in the end, you know, I, I loved him. I loved him as an artist. There was not a performer in the world that could pull a stunt like he did at the Super Bowl you are not just going to stand still for like two minutes and just let people go nuts on you. I don't think today people could spend the kind of money he was spending on music videos. I don't think people will ever get the music sales, even remotely close to what Michael Jackson had. There is never going to be, and this is the final line, there's never going to be anyone in the world like Michael Jackson. And that's all I have to say.
4: Aside from in the whole other episode you're going to do
5: shut up <laughs>
4: except for that whole 22nd episode you are you have some other things that shall will say but.
3: you are a backwoods hillbilly hobo who pees off his porch
4: yeah but i ain't never done a 22 part episode.
3: <laughs> you're getting nothing for christmas
5: i, I don't that's fine <laughs>
3: all right well we are now done the next episode is actually just literally going to be me and will talking about the documentary leaving neverland but it also will probably drop on the same day as our next series which tj do you want to tell us what the next series is because i've already said it a couple times but let's go out with a bang
4: i'll be doing a a a a weak tepid, pathetic three-part series (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> god you suck so much
4: oh uh, god i'm so i'm so lazy what, what a lackadaisical effort a three-part series on the 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 great tammy Wynette. the one uh, little uh, caution i want to throw out though is that a little inside baseball here at, at a certain point ld and i were discussing about how long the michael jackson series was going to be and she was like oh, it's gonna be pretty long like it's gonna be like it might be eight parts <laughs>
3: Ah, I was lying. And I said,
4: okay, well, I've already written the Tammy Wynette series. I'm done with it. So why don't we uh, one day just knock out a couple of Michael Jacksons. We'll go ahead and record a bunch of Tammy Wynette. So the, the, the parts one and two of Tammy Wynette were actually recorded in January.
3: <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so
4: I'd, I have almost no recollection of them, like none. I remember that we recorded them and that it snowed that day here and that's about all oh my so gosh. it has been a while since we did those and um, <laughs> but part three will
3: be fresh and new
4: part three will be fresh and new and then i'm, I'm sure we'll throw a slap nuts in there maybe after that but yes
3: we will yeah. we absolutely um, have to have one for this month
4: the first two i have i don't i mean i wrote them so i kind of remember i know what happens <laughs> and stuff but i don't remember anything we said about it or in any of the interplay betwixt us or what we did on my little list at the end or any of that stuff like i don't i don't i don't remember any of that
3: me neither do you honey
1: the last time i did a series was august (laughs) of 2021
4: (laughs) the the last the, the last episode i took lead on was the middle of august And then will took the baton from August to November. And he and I have just been spectators since then. (laughs)
3: That is the absolute truth. Yeah. If, if you, honey, if you don't have your series on Lane Staley done by now, you have failed. (laughs) So a little spoiler alert, the next series that will is going to be taking up is. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Of Allison chains, which is in keeping with our series of making sure that every episode is an uplifting series. That also comes with trigger warnings. So I hope you guys enjoyed this series on Michael Jackson. I know that it was uh, you know, 21, 22 uh, episodes, but again, this man lived a life. I could have broke, I could have done this in 50 episodes. I could have made this 50. 50- I could have done one episode for every year of his life. In fact, this episode was a year and well, I think it was like, like not even, not even two years of his life. And we are almost at three hours. So If that tells you what kind of life this man led. And of course, again, I have to say almost every time I know that there are things that we've missed and if we did, I'm sorry. But again, we had some great books that I've uh, put, you know, in past show notes and I've uh, told you about them up the top. So if you're interested, let me know. Um, I have copies of these books. If you want them, I am willing to give them up because we are moving and I have a lot of books and Will is going to kill me if I have any more books. And uh, I'm. I'll happily send them to you. Also, I did want to note that we did get a message on one of our socials, and this is for you boys. Uh, I was told by a, a listener that Jesus Juice was not created by Michael Jackson. Okay. That they said that it was actually slang prior to Michael Jackson using it. So I have no okay. idea. Which I had, and I thought
4: about something after the episode. It, it was wine. And he, he called it Jesus juice, you know, water to wine <laughs> that, yeah. that angle didn't even think didn't occur to me until I was listening to the show after we'd already recorded it. But yeah.
3: Yeah. So I wanted to thank that, yeah, per- listener. that perhaps
4: that would be somewhere that that would come in.
3: Yeah. So I just want to thank that listener for pointing sure. that out because yeah, thank you. again, we always want to be educated. So if, if you have any pronunciations for medications, please let me know because
4: yeah, hook us up.
3: I am terrible at last names and medication. Those are my two blind weak spots. I mean, for God's sakes, my first name has no vowels in it. How am I supposed to be able to pronounce anything? And if you're wondering why I was able to look at Ken Ehrlich's name and be able to pronounce that so easily, that's because that's my last name too. Woo! (laughs) Again, thank you guys so much for hanging in with this series. It has been a, a megalith. It's been a mega pint of books and research and documentaries that has taken us through at least three of the four seasons. And um, I will be glad to say that it is over because every time I opened up a book, I was on the verge of tears because I knew what was going to happen. And um, so thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. I truly love you guys for hanging in there. So our social stuff, uh, if you would like to give to our Patreon, you can do so at rock and roll heaven. At Twitter at Rock and Roll LT, you can find us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook Rock and Roll Heaven Pod, come join us over there, guys. We have a lot of fun, and if any there's any kind of breaking news or any kind of quizzes or articles, we're over there having just a good time. Uh, and you get all three of us over there as well. Still not saying our website and our TikTok is at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. If we get enough listeners, I think if we get a thousand listeners, we can actually go live. So, guys. Spread the word on that TikTok. We're at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. That's all one word. And uh, it's the logo for TikTok, is the same as our logo for this show. You can email us too at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other Pantheon podcasts, pantheonpodcast.com. So, from all of us here at Rock and Roll Heaven, all of you at home, just remember the light at the end of the tunnel might be those LED screens that Michael Jackson was going to jump into the plane and fly off in. TJ, would you like to say anything to the audience?
4: I'm going to say what I always say in just a second, but I, I want to say real quick, I'm fresh out of uh, COVID quarantine, and uh, I was lucky and, uh, and blessed and didn't have any symptoms or anything, but uh, we, we love y'all. Be healthy and be careful, and uh, bye,
3: everybody. All right. Yeah, please, if you can get the vaccine, please do. Mr. Will the Thrill, what do you have to say to the folks at home? I can say thanks for coming along. It's been an amazing series and
1: don't go anywhere because we still have one more episode on Michael Jackson. <laughs> but then as uh, LD pointed out, we are jumping into Tanny Net, which is going to be a fantastic series helmed by TJ2. And then I'm going to take us back to the 90s with uh, Lane Staley of Alice in Chains.
3: All right. Well, I guess I have nothing to say to you guys except for I love you very much. And we're going to end this series with a song that was actually a cover for Michael. It was actually in a silent film starring Charlie Chaplin and he chose to cover it. But for me, this song has a deeper meaning after this series. It's always been a favorite song of mine, not just the Michael Jackson version, but it appeared in the movie, My Girl 2, and they did it on Glee and it's just a beautiful song. So I'm going to close out the series with one of my favorites and... One of Michael's favorites, which is Smile from the album History. Love you guys. See you next time. Be safe and have a good night.
7: Smile, even though it's breaking, when there are clouds in the sky.